The names and the stories in this episode have been omitted to protect the privacy of the individuals involved. This is Jocko Podcast number 77 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And tonight we welcome back to the show retired Chief Warrant Officer Roger Hayden. And if you don't know who Roger Hayden is, then just stop right now and go back to episode 37 of this <laughs> podcast. And you can listen to Roger came on for a short period of time. We had some time constraints on the first time that Roger came on. But he's one of the men on which the reputation of the SEAL teams is built. Started off as a frogman member of the underwater demolition teams and deployed to Vietnam with underwater demolition team 12. And then came back and checked into SEAL team 1 where he deployed again two times to Vietnam. And then spent... 30 years in the SEAL teams, and then as a civilian, has another how many years? 20. Another, so we're just looking at a solid 50 years of service to Naval Special Warfare and the SEAL teams. So, like I said, Roger's been on before, and I'll tell one real quick story to kind of give a little background as to Roger's attitude about things. And so I was on, and I told this part of the story last time we were on a ship we were we were having our our operational readiness exercise was being graded it's called an ORE and the person that's grading it is Roger Hayden so you know the the young seal platoons we're getting graded and making sure that we know what we're doing and at this point Roger is a warrant officer so he's a commissioned officer and he's out on the ship with us going you know watching how we're planning and seeing how we're preparing our gear and making sure that we're we know what we're doing like I said and as a commissioned officer you're supposed to be eating in what's called the wardroom with the rest of the officers so you know the military has officers and they have enlisted guys and the officers are sort of the managers and the enlisted guys are the workers and as an officer on a ship on a Navy ship you have something called a wardroom which is nice they have it's it's just a little it's a, it's not even a little level up it's pretty darn nice in the wardroom I've eaten in both the wardroom and on the mess decks in the wardroom you know you have real silver and there's actually people serving you mm. so the wardroom is, is kind of nice well Roger as a warrant officer is you know permitted or authorized or supposed to eat with the rest of the officers you know he's supposed to go get that good treatment and Roger didn't want to eat with the officers he wanted to eat with the chief. So then the middle management of the of the Navy is the chief, the chief petty officers. Mm-hmm. And there's chiefs, senior chiefs and master chiefs. And they're like the backbone of the Navy. They have the, the tactical knowledge in the SEAL teams. And so Roger, instead of wanting instead of eating with the officers, he wanted to eat with the chiefs. Sure. And he, before he was a warrant officer, what were you, a senior chief before you were a warrant officer? Master chief. Oh, master chief. So he was already a master chief before he became a warrant <clears throat> officer. And so he started eating the chief's mess with all the chiefs. Well, some of the the, the chiefs on the ship, they didn't like having an officer. You know, right? We don't want this officer in here. This is our territory, yeah, yeah. right? This is our area. Yeah. You can't, you know, we can't. Why is this officer coming in here? Yeah. And so my platoon chief at the time was actually friends with with Roger, but you know he was the guy that was getting had relate building relationships with the chiefs on the ship and all that stuff, and so they knew him. And they and he was a senior chief, and they pulled him aside. And they said, "Hey, you know, hey, hey, senior chief, 
you know, it's kind of we got this warrant officer. He's a seal. Why is he coming in? He's not shouldn't be coming in here. He needs to go to the he needs to go to the uh, the the wardroom with the rest of the officers. This is the chief's mess. He doesn't belong in here. And so my chief was like listening to him. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not sure why you feel that way, but this goes on for a couple days, and finally my platoon chief and I wasn't there for this, but I got told the story. And my platoon chief was a guy from the south, and he had a great accent and talked in a very distinct manner. And so, so they get into lunch. I think it was lunch. They roll into the the chief's mess for lunch, and Warren Officer Hayden comes in, and he's standing in there, and he's getting a couple looks from people. And finally, my platoon chief stands up and says, uh, "Can I ask everyone in here a question?" real quick <laughs> and they go okay you know what what and he says well this here is warrant officer roger hayden member of the underwater demolition teams member of the seal team served three tours in vietnam highly decorated including a purple heart for being wounded and he was a master chief before he got commissioned and he wants to eat with us in the chief's mess does anyone here have a problem with that? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, no one did. <laughs> Nothing but crickets. And so, Roger Hayden eats where Roger Hayden wants to eat. <laughs> so, Roger, welcome to the show once again. Thanks for coming back. I know last time we were time constrained, and uh, you said you'd come back. So here you are. Appreciate you coming back on. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, like I said, anybody that wants to get the full background. You know, listen to podcast number 37, and he talks a little bit about how you grew up. But I had a question. When you joined, so you came in, and your dad was UDT, which is awesome. And then when you joined the Navy in 1965, did you know you were going to Vietnam? Was the war big enough yet? Because we had this guy on last time, Captain Charlie Plum, and he went to the Naval Academy. And he, he said he, he graduated from the Naval Academy, I think, in 1965 as well. But... He said he never heard he never heard the word Vietnam one time while he was going to the Naval Academy. It wasn't until he graduated that the war escalated, and all of a sudden they realized when he was going through flight training that yeah, you're going to Vietnam. But when you joined in '65, did you know? I mean, were you thinking yeah, I'm definitely going to go to war and go to Vietnam? Yeah, pretty much because uh, I'd have been drafted in the army, and I knew the army was going to Vietnam, so I figured. Um, I knew I wanted to go in the Navy and into UDT. My dad never talked about it much, but uh, you know, when I was a younger, I watched the movies of the Marines attacking beachheads and getting mowed down, and you know, Rangers taking heavies and stuff. And then I saw the bridge of the river quieting the guns at Navarone, and I figured, yeah, if you're going to fight, that's the kind of outfit you want to fight. You want to sneak so, around a little yeah. bit more. So yeah, I did. I, I in fact, as soon as I got in to the Navy, I uh, I took the screening test and all that stuff. And, you know, <clears throat> before I even went to, no, right after, when I was at Radioman School, I was a Radioman, mm-hmm. so through it, that was a 22-week-long school. And that's what I did is I worked and did all that stuff and did the screening test and, yeah. you know, and uh, they wanted me to go to Rota or some other Navy installation because I didn't do too bad in radio in school. I wasn't the number one guy, but and I went, no, I'm going to go to UDT, and so. And then you, you went to what, the, the USS? Well, yeah, the, we, our class, our class wasn't starting up for about six months. 
So they stuck me on the USS Paul Revere at 32nd Street waiting for uh, UDT training. And I was a designated seaman. Back in the day, a designated seaman was pretty good. wasn't like it is now. And I figured I'd work in the radio shack or something uh-huh. like that. Well, as soon as they checked aboard, they put me mess cook, and I was down in the scullery. <laughs> and when we went down there, there were two other guys that were waiting for uh, training, too, that were in the scullery. So yeah. we sat there and did that for six months and got off the ship and w- went next door, crossed the bay there to training. Yeah, that's something in the Navy. It's If you're a new guy, everyone talks about how new guys get treated wherever you are in the military, but in the Navy, mm-hmm. when you go, when you show up to a ship, you doesn't matter. You have to work in the in the scullery, which is washing dishes. What is it? A ninety day stint you got to do in there? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. pretty much ninety days. Are, and and you only don't do that if you're an E four and above. Right. And we did. I did a deployment where we had a guy that was an e, a SEAL, but he was an E three, and you know he was saying, "Hey, wait, how, how am I going to get out of this?" you know, doing the scullery duty. And we were like, you're not. <laughs> That's the rules. <laughs> no, and you're going to go do it. You can do it. I was a senior <laughs> chief, two of us, a guy named a real good friend of mine. We couldn't get a flight back, so they put us on an ARG to float back here to San Diego. And uh, we kept all of our guys from yeah. the uh, mess cook and that were seamen. That's because legit. Because we just went, uh, we got stuff to do, we're doing training, and uh, they haven't got time to do that. Yeah. So we kept them out of, of course, I was a senior chief then, and so was so we had a little pull. Yeah. Plus the cob of the boat, he really liked us a uh-huh. lot, and, uh, you know, the the CMC, and he was a PBR Vietnam guy. So oh, really? we got along really well, yeah. Yeah, well, and actually, this kid ended up making E four. Luckily, before we went on deployment, so wow, he skated perfect, out of yeah. it. But uh, I but remember we still did uh, bringing in the supplies and stuff like that, you know, because it was a good workout. You know, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We I did forget that what too. they call that unreps. Unreps, yeah. yeah. We did that too. Yeah, we, I actually, when when I so my first deployment, I deployed to Guam. And you know, we just did whatever we wanted. I was 21 years old. It was completely insane. You got all this per diem money. You felt like the richest. You were, never mind. Felt like you you were the richest guy you ever met. I mean, you, you never made any money when you're in 16, 17 years old. You get in the SEAL teams. You're getting all this money, and then they go overseas and they're giving you per diem. Mm-hmm. And so you're the richest dude in the world. You have very limited responsibilities because you're a new guy in a SEAL platoon. So what do you do? Just get crazy and get after it. <laughs> and you know, you're doing whatever you want. And then my next deployment was on a ship. And we pull into the first port. And they say, um, you know, E4 and below, Liberty expires at 10 o'clock. And I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm a SEAL. And they're like, no, actually, you'll be back on the ship at 10 o'clock. And there was no way around it. I mean, there was ways around it. We found ways around You know what the way around it was? I'd put my PT gear in a backpack. And then go off the ship to go out whatever and then hang out all night until five o'clock in the morning and i put my pt gear back on i'd run get a sweat going to walk up the brow at whatever i was coming back and say <laughs> yeah i was just out for a run got my rock on <laughs> so there was ways sure. there was ways to make it happen mm-hmm. so speaking of guys from from uh, when you were going through training was there guys when you're going through Bud's training, was there Korean Korean vet UDT guys in there? Was no. it World War II? Was it just Vietnam guys, the early oh, you Vietnam mean guys? Our instructors? Yeah. Oh, there were World War II guys. There was one guy named, um, um, God damn it, um, great big tall guy, Ku Cut. 
And and he was a World War II UDT guy. Well, let me tell you the story on that guy. So we're out at, uh, we just get to San Kemeny, the last part of the training, you know, third phase, you, you know. So we're all lined up there. We just got off. We went out there in an LCU, you know, with all of our demo and ammo and all that other crap. And we just mustered out there. And this guy comes walking up, great big tall guy, real old. What was I, 19, 18? You know what I mean? And he looked probably like uh, you do or I do. We thought he was an old guy. <laughs> Oldest you know? guy you've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, but he looks at us and he starts talking, you know, and he goes, God damn it. Uh, I'm the I'm your demo instructor and uh, keeps talking. He says I don't brook no bullshit on the ranges, you know. And we're kind of just looking at him like, what the hell? And he gets himself worked up a little bit. And he goes, um, matter of fact, uh, anybody that screws up, we'd just go out behind the shitter and get it squared away, you know. And we're still looking at him. He talks a little bit more and gets himself all excited and shit. And he goes, matter of fact, anybody wants to go out behind the shitter right now, we'll go, you know. <laughs> we're just looking. Well, come to find out later on was in the 82nd airborne and jumped into normandy oh damn got captured escaped on and on and then he was in the korean war too that was one of our instructors almost all of them there were in the korean war you know mm -hmm. pretty much but uh then we had another guy and um on his jacket he wore he had a udt instructor on the other side was god you know he was <laughs> he was a hook-nosed indian <laughs> apache and he was a badass dude man <laughs> We had some great guys, and uh, most of the instructors, yeah, were, uh, and some were Vietnam guys, yeah. you know, like um, um, had this one blue-eyed guy. He uh, was, oh, I can't think of his name right now either, but he was um, <clears throat> on vacation, was paddling up north uh, in the, <clears throat> on the Columbia River, or something. no, not that north, the east coast side, and uh, his, he was uh, on an excursion with some other people, and his canoe tipped over. And uh, he it was real cold and shit, and he was trying to swim a couple of them to shore and shit, and then just uh, just went out. But mm. this guy would run behind you, and you, of course we didn't have a lot of hair, but what we had stood up, you know, and you turn and look, and there he was just staring at you. Had these blue eyes, you know. I'll think of his name in a minute. Real good guy though. And there, there must have been because Buds is pretty regimented now. But they must have had no. It was it was definitely less regimented when I went through for sure. It must have been completely just like no rules when you went through. No, we had this guy during Hell Week. He had what they called the swimmer line, and like I say, we we're on the Bay side. Mm -hmm. Mind you, we were in training in January. Started uh, three January, something colder than God. You know what he would do is uh, we'd all he'd have us hook into what we call the flutterboard line. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you do recons, the guys hold on the line, you yeah. move down the line and stuff, and uh, he'd send us all out. And hell, there's about, fuck, it's about 60 of us, excuse my language. <laughs> that's a big, about, about that's 60 a big of us. flood of wind. He'd send us out, and we had to be in a straight line. If we weren't, he'd bring us all back and line us all up again. <laughs> and we weren't straight, so he sent us out again, yeah. brought us all back in. And we're freezing. The guys are almost getting hypothermia because we're not. We're just in a K-Pock and, uh, you know, regular uh, utilities that you wear for training. You know? So he sent us out again the third time. And, like, if you're on the bitter end line, you're, you're, you're screwed, you know. <laughs> then he brought us back in. He goes, well, goddamn, I guess it still wasn't very uh, – you guys still weren't in a straight line, and we may we're gonna have to send you out again, all the way down the line. All you heard was click, 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 click. We just looked at him. 
well, all right, we got other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. We were done, man. I mean, you had lost the whole class. <laughs> That was so cold. Yeah, yeah. People always, if if you don't know California and you think California is like Baywatch, the old TV <laughs> right. show, and you think the water's all warm, it's not warm. Yeah, yeah. It's not warm, especially in January. Yeah. January third, no. it's not going to be warm. And and you were saying you guys were swimming like crazy going through that because you knew that you were going to UDT at yeah, that time. Well, it's a you're a frogman. That's what you're being trained for, not seals. So we did a lot more water work than you guys did going through buds. Because we didn't have the SEAL portion of it. Mm-hmm. We got that after we made our deployment, came back, went to SEAL team, then you went to a cadre. Yeah. Did you get any land warfare at all in BUDS? Oh, yeah, a little bit. Just, it was more basics. like, uh, yeah, basic stuff and uh, little immediate IEDs, but mm-hmm. immediate action drills, but not much. It was uh, like our last stop that we had, I think I told you this, in, uh, on San Kimeni was uh, we did swimmer scouts in on the other side of a uh, – rock formation we called birdship rock and got to the island they gave us all uh, the 40 pound haversacks and we went from there all the way 23 miles to the other end of the island wait blew up some you were the, walking yeah okay so you humped 23 miles yeah. after you swam over the beach yeah and then came back and attacked the camp that was our last stop dang <laughs> that's a that's a crappy patrol too those oh, cactuses yeah, yeah i know <laughs> Yeah, that that's a and I, I was small. I was thought I was pretty smart. See, so I wore a, a kind of a um, wetsuit. What do you call that? The small one, you know? Oh, like a wetsuit the top, cheater, like a, oh, the yeah, cheater, a cheater yeah. top. And because I, you know, so I wouldn't freeze to death coming in. And actually, this was April, almost the end of April, and it was still cold out at San Clemente, you know. So yeah. we swam in, and I humped with that thing on yeah. all the way up there, and it got sunny and warm, yeah. and I almost friggin' died. And by <laughs> the time no, I got back, you could peel it off me like this, you know. Just yeah. <laughs> there's no good There's no good way to do it. There's, like, no good way to handle coming over the beach. No. It's not going to be convenient, and you're not going to be comfortable. That's one of the things that makes, in my opinion, the one of the things that makes – the SEAL team, the guys in the SEAL team is really good, is that we just have to deal with the water. And as soon as you're dealing with the water, like you just said, there's no easy way to do that. Like, you're going to either be freezing in the water, or you're going to be sweating on land, or you're going to be too hot. Or, or, no, actually, you're not. You're going you're gonna to be okay in the, on, the, on the land. It's just, you're just screwed, is what I'm saying. And not to mention your weapons. Your weapons all get your radios all get jacked up. Your your weapons all get jacked up. Your gear gets all jacked up. You got sand in your boots. There's no good way to deal with it. No, there's not. And on top of that, the communications like you're in the water. You can't talk to people. You can't. There's no radios aren't working. It just everything sucks. And so when we would do ops dry, it just seems like it's so easy to do. And I think that's the one big thing that separates. It doesn't separate us, but it's one of the things that makes us good is that we have to deal with the water and we deal with it our whole career. Well, bottom line is you should never bring a boat to shore. You always swim in. Yep. That's what we do. Yep. Just like swimmer scouts, the whole nine yards. Yep. That's, that's the bottom line. Well, as a chief, that's pretty hard on that stuff. We never uh, brought the boats ashore. You know yeah. What I mean? You know, we, d- we, we did the same thing when we were in the art platoon. Mm-hmm. We never brought the boats in because there's a... There's a 10, 15, maybe 20% chance that you're going to flip a boat, you're going to lose a boat, something's going to happen to a boat, and then you're screwed. Now you got a boat washing up against the shore, and you got to deal with it, and it's a big, no, we always Plus swim it, in. It's a big, it's a big target. Yeah, for sure, for you sure. Know, like a, in Desert Storm, you know, when we inserted those Kuwaitis, the uh, officer, I won't mention any names, but wanted to bring both the boats in, you know, and into Kuwait, mm. and let the Kuwaiti guys off. And I went, no, I, 
keep at least if you're going to do that, keep one boat back, even yeah. if you keep another boat in shore because they can give covering fire. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then if they have to E and E, and you know you could be seen. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's that's a big target. You yeah. know what I mean? You just don't do that. You know? No. Now that that's there's so many things you got to figure out with the water. Yeah. And when you when you go, I mean that's why when we were in Iraq and we rarely did boat ops, we did some in 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 the river, but. You're just either on foot. It just everything is so much easier. It's it's oh, crazy, yeah. it's crazy. Uh, you get so you get done with training. Sanco de Mayo, 1967. You get done with training and you check into UDT 12. And you didn't really know too much about the SEAL teams. I guess no one at that time knew much about the SEAL no, teams. No, not much at all. No. And you were saying on that first podcast that we did that the platoons weren't really formed up yet. You kind of showed up at UDT and you're it's 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 kind of a loose situation. But you do do a workup. Oh, once we started working up, then it was regimented. You know, you knew what you had to do. But we had a while. They had just come back and relieved uh, UDT-11 had just deployed, and then 12 came back, and you have a kind of a stand-down mm-hmm. for about a month or two. Oh, so that's what you showed up for. Up. Yeah. Okay. Because it's a nine-month deployment for UDTs. So you have about a six-month workup. And then you have three months where the guys go and leave school Got and stuff it. like that. And we came, I came in just at that time. Got it. So it was really kind of like uh, we'd go up and do what they call silver slippers up at uh, Pendleton when the Marines would do amphibious landings and we'd be the lifeguards mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Until we started forming up and yeah. start working. Then it got it got pretty good. What did you guys do? Was the, Were they hardcore about PT back then? Oh, yeah. Would you guys do team PTs? Yep. Platoons or team? Team. The whole team. Yep. And was every, it just every every day. <laughs> was it the same? Was it flutter kicks, push ups, pull yeah, ups? Just, dips? It was your basic PT. In fact, I didn't start lifting weights until shit, I was in about fifteen years, maybe sixteen, seventeen years, because uh, you do old course swimming, all the PT we yeah. did and everything. We were in really good shape. I yeah. mean, you know what I mean? And you didn't see a lot of the guys in the gym lifting yeah. heavy and stuff that came on later on then also which i changed when i was later on when i was a chief and a senior chief and stuff and uh even uh no not as an lpo we still did platoon pt every mm-hmm. morning but uh we'd do it every other day then let the guys go off and do their running right. do their pt uh weight lifting and stuff like that and it worked out well you know, you can change, even though I thought PT in the morning, first thing is the best to do. Yeah. Especially when we were in Subic and, you know, about, <laughs> oh, three, yeah. about half the guys would be throwing up and stuff when they were doing <laughs> PT. <laughs> yeah, I always like, we used to, at Team 1, when I got to Team 1, there was that, that Team PT we did every day, and mm-hmm. Team 2 is the same thing. But, you know, I'll tell you, once the war started, there's a lot less focus on PT and it it just was. Well, guys were staying in shape. Depends on where you are too, Jocko. You yeah. can't really go for long runs and shit when you're in a rock and shit. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we'd run around base and. <clears throat> but did you guys have like a? Uh, my my question is: uh, Did you take weights with you? Did you yep. have a workout place yep. and stuff? Yeah, we deployed. Good. And actually, once one team shows up mm-hmm. somewhere on deployment, they all bring a bunch of gear. Yeah, and then there's enough to do it to get it done, and then. Other teams, they don't have to bring everything, but they'll bring more stuff. And eventually, you know, whatever compound you're in is pretty nice. If you go to that same compound, yeah. 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 And, uh, and I always brought, I brought mats for, for jujitsu. I'd make a little jujitsu area so I could still, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So I could still train and get the boys training. And, um, you know what's funny too is like you were talking about, it's, it's weird how some of this stuff stays. 
because you were talking about walking around in UDT shorts and and coral boots. And unfortunately, UDT shorts, I don't think guys wear them. I don't think they even get issued them anymore. But when I got the team one, we absolutely got issued UDT shorts. And that's what that was our uniform. And we got issued coral booties, those old gray coral booties. And I didn't realize, you know, that's what you guys wore. That's mm-hmm. that's something Same that they've thing, yeah, yeah. probably been issued for, I don't know. For, Even out in uh, town, you'd see guys with the coral boots on with their <laughs> Levi's and their Rolex watch and stuff. You know what I mean? You, you could pick out a team guy in a heartbeat. Yeah. I, I was... Uh, I was I looked I looked up coral booties and I was just seeing if anybody makes them anymore. They're hard to get. They're on eBay. You got to buy a pair on eBay. And you got to be lucky if they have your size. I got to go through my gear and see if I still have my coral booties. Um, but and then you did do a, a legit workup though, where you did all your hydro recons. Oh and yeah, all we that did stuff. river recons, uh, <clears throat> like uh, up the coast by Pendleton. Uh, we drug this one rocket looking thing in up over these fucking mountains and put it in the lake and <laughs> stuff like that and then uh, we swam across the uh, uh well did we swim no we didn't right there at the channel and it goes out yeah and you have those old gun emplacements yeah. and shit yeah we had to attack those and they had them set up with booby traps and stuff so we'd go across and work our way up and shit like that always stuff yeah in yeah. udt it was it wasn't bad it was good training i mean but it wasn't you know this, like a story I told you was um, during the uh, 67, 68 Tet, we were in Dongtam on the Ascari, and that's when we were, I was with UDT, and there were about 17 of us on there. We were doing that dart thing later mm-hmm. on, getting that a little bit more, but uh, that's when we worked with the 9th Infantry and stuff. And uh, anyway, uh, they had a SEAL platoon in Mito, which wasn't too, too far away, but it was right in the town. Why these coasts would have a, would have a, their, place in in a town i'd never know because anytime you left or went anywhere you know what i'm saying yeah. you could be picked out but anyway so they were almost getting overran Yeesh. but they were on the tallest building they had a 57 recordist rifle and stuff anyway they sent a call out hey we need help and there were 17 of us you know on the Ascari udt guys we wanted to go in and rescue them and save them and our officer uh, just a great guy lieutenant said now you ain't going anywhere we were so How would you gotten in there? Helicopter? We don't know. Don't even know. <laughs> we just wanted to just, go and help them. Yeah, you know, big cars just ready to <laughs> yeah. go. Yeah, you know, they're seals, but they're yeah. UDT guys yeah. too. So anyway, so um, we didn't do that, and I got back from deployment. Went to the seal team. Went to the cadre. And, and, I, and, and those I, guys, I, those guys, by the way, they didn't get overrun. They, no, they they, they, they bought them they, off. They, they were right. coming up the uh, stairways and they were throwing grenades down at him and stuff like that. And then finally, the Arvin and the U.S. came in and, and took me to back over. It was during the '67, '68, uh. which was real bad. But anyway, so when I got back and I went through cadre and stuff, I found out. You know, okay, yeah. we weren't ready for this. We didn't know any immediate action drills. And, well, not a lot. Not, yeah, yeah not, limited. Not. You know, pounded into our head right. where we'd automatically think about them. And Did you plus, do any urban environment whatsoever? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Plus, we weren't urban, and that was urban. Yeah. We'd add our asses handed to us, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because we didn't know we were tough. fighters. We'd have fought, but, you know, figure those guys in me told the VC and stuff, they are, they had their shit together. That was their town and stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? We'd, uh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know more about the urban stuff than I do because I never fought urban, you know? Yeah. We'd hit hooches and stuff like that, but we never swept through. Uh, we did one village one time, but it was, you know, it was, it was good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so when you deploy to with UDT, 
Did you guys ride a ship over there? Did you fly over there? How'd you get to Vietnam? We flew over to Subic Bay, and uh, like I said, uh, <clears throat> that's where we were at. That's like you went to Guam. Mm-hmm. Well, Subic was our place, Subic uh-huh. Bay, and then uh, they would uh, we'd fly over to. Uh, we had different debts that we had in Vietnam. <clears throat> like in uh, Da Nang, they had Camp Tinshaw, and from Da Nang, you'd work up around Fubai Way, Quang Tree, Dung Hall, the northern part of the area and stuff, you know. And then we got on the Daishinko, and I don't know if we picked the Daishinko up at Subic or not. We might have. And then when, when we did all them beach recons. <laughs> and yeah. then the next debt I went to was down in uh, Dongtam on the Would uh, you go back to Subic in between at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? And we'd be there for about a month and or three weeks. And, and so we, you, we, deplo- we had you basically at- deploy from Subic out to Vietnam, yeah. do operations for a month, then go back no, three to three months. Oh, there for three months yeah, at a time. Yeah, three months at a time, yeah. Oh, usually. but it's a nine-month deployment. Yeah. So, yeah, I, we my three deaths were Da Nang, then on the Daishinko, and then down in Dongtam when I was in UDT. And that was three months at each place. And... Uh, First of all, the, on the last one, you ta- talked about doing 130 miles worth of beach recon. No, it was about 120, I think, yeah. I'll give lot. you the bonus <laughs> 10, it Roger. Was, it was three months. I mean, you know. But, you, you know, you were kind of talking about it like, oh, you know, we were doing this recon. But that was, you were, you were reconning beaches in North Vietnam? No, South Vietnam. South Vietnam. Yeah. And was there any resistance? Were you guys in jeopardy of getting rolled up? Or was it more of like almost an admin thing? Or was it somewhere in between? No, we, we always had either Marines or the Arvin, which was the uh, 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 South yep. Vietnamese Army, they would uh, screen, put screens out when we would do the beaches to cover us in case we got hit with anything. Because right. they were, nobody knew what was really on the beaches and stuff. But if the Marines were in the area, they'd send a patrol and they'd work the back, back shore and stuff as we were doing our mm-hmm. recon and stuff. And the one that I told you we got hit was we didn't have any Army or Marines, so we sent two of our guys in the back to kind of check things out as we're doing a recon, and that's when we got caught in that, almost caught in that uh, L-shaped ambush. And uh, what happened was, as we were coming down the beach, and we had the guys out, and I was a photographer, so I was out front with another guy, and I had a pair of bathing suit, uh, UDTs on, coral booties, and my super slate, and I was writing the backshore information down. (laughs) So everyone knows what we're talking about. When you're going to land people on beaches, or if you're potentially going to land people on beaches, you have to do a reconnaissance of the beach, but not just of the beach itself, but of the water, and how deep the water is, and make sure there's no obstacles in there. And so the people that did this since World War II was the, the underwater demolition teams. So that's what we're talking about. And the way you do it is you, you have a, a literally, you have a line, a big rope. It's small. It's, it's more like a line than it is rope. But that stretches from the beach, from a couple guys on the beach called the beach party, all the way out to a boat, a small little rubber boat. Well, way, sometimes, way out yeah, and then the, the, that was an IBS we hooked it to, and it's about 30 feet. It has knots where you know each pair is going to be holding on to, and you mark, take the sounding. Then you, as you went to the next sounding, which was 25 yards down yeah. the beach, and on the beach they'd be holding up these uh, markers so yeah. that you could get yourself on them. You'd be dipping, doing down until you got to that right point again then you'd take your sounding again yeah. then you come back and make a hydrographic chart you know? so there's guys on the beach that are holding what we call range markers and they're yeah. set what are they set like 10 yards apart like yeah. one guy in the front one guy in the back and they're looking at a compass so that they're making sure that they're lined up so that lines up this whole line so it's this it's this kind of complicated 
and it seems like an administrative thing, but you got to do it. Otherwise, you know, you get a situation where the Marines come into land and they hit a like they did, yeah, yeah. like like they did in Tarawa, and they hit a big, they hit a, a, a reef. reef, and then they drop the ramps. The guys get out, and they didn't know that that reef was only ten feet long. Right. It's two feet deep, but now on the other side of the reef, the guys are going into ten, twelve, fifteen yeah. feet of water and drown. So that's why you have to actually be. Per- fairly precise or at least as precise as you can be when you're taking these when you're doing this hydrographic reconnaissance so you you have the backshore party you know the two guys there and you have the officer and a couple other guys picking up the stakes putting the stakes out and that's usually a cartographer's job you're way out ahead of Mm -hmm. everybody else taking the backshore information so when you come back and do your hydrographic chart you know, you you can lay it out exactly. Then you have to do a Leroy pen. I was a cartographer. I mm-hmm. know all this shit, so which I hated. Because you, know? you had to man make, hand draw the mm-hmm. maps. Yeah. You're hand drawn that, and those 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 charts that you draw, you're gonna present. Those are gonna get presented to you know the the Navy, and they're gonna use those charts to conduct this landing. So, like I said, they got to be good. Got to be good quality. Yeah. Anyway, so. Uh, our two guys were walking along, and we were doing our beach reconnaissance and everything. Well, they, they uh, had a nail-shaped ambush on us, and they had a spider hole back here with a couple of guys that it, once we got hit, and if anybody ran back, these guys would hose them down. Mm-hmm. Well, our two guys hit those two guys in the spider hole and opened up on them, which made them open up on us sooner. So we all leapfrogged back down the beach, and we had really a great guy i mean he took charge everything was perfect we grabbed onto the line the boat the uh, ibs took off and you know nine horse nine and a half uh <laughs> horsepower engine didn't go real fast you know <laughs> then we had a coast guard cutter out there they started lobbing in uh <clears throat> willie peter on them but we didn't know it was them and some of it landed pretty close to us so we thought that was them doing hit, trying to hit us anyway we got out far enough and our pl that we finally got to and got uh-huh. on appeals uh you know the boat that the uh, uh that we inserted yeah. off of and okay. stuff and uh they picked us up and the guy was shooting his 50 and stuff but what was really neat was in come these two jets Oh, nice. And they napalm the whole beach. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of cool. That's when I told you when I got back to the boat, I said, screw this naked warrior shit. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't admit, so you're in a pair of UDTs, mm-hmm. coral a, booties. Coral booties, a, that's like what? Like the, reef the, walkers, those the, little. They're like, uh, they're like Chuck Converse Chuck Taylors, yeah, but yeah. a little bit leaner. Do yeah. they have the, the, the split for the. No, no, they're like yeah, they're just like they were, they were coral tables. boots, so, so you could walk on coral, yeah, and yeah. not get cut. But up. when that it was... like hold you down, they're not big, big. Boots. No, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. They were water. they were light. They were canvas, and they had yeah. a kind of a real thick rubberized bottom on it. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were good, and then uh, I had an M seventy nine, so I'm shooting that thing as I'm running back and stuff. Then that's the only weapon you had, is an M seventy nine. That's all I had. Yeah, that and your your yeah. slate to draw on. Yeah, collect back short information. That was kind of exciting. And was that before you? Was that was that recon before you worked with the Ninth Infantry? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I so went from there from the Daishinko down to Dongtam and worked with the Ninth Infantry. And the uh, the Ninth Infantry, man. So this stuff, I, I, I was looking about you know about the Ninth Infantry and what they did, and but just first of all, the Ninth Infantry is the is the unit that the fictional character Forrest Gump was supposed to be attached to which is why in the movies working by the water and all that stuff i imagine that's what they that's why they picked it uh the 
Ninth Infantry in Vietnam had 10 Medal of Honors awarded to soldiers and three sailors. So they were working in conjunction very closely with the Brownwater Navy, which, again, to pull a quote from the last time you, you were on, Roger, you were like saying that job as being Brownwater Navy was just a vicious job. Mm-hmm. I vicious job. <laughs> and General Westmoreland said that the 9th Infantry Division and the Mobile Riverine Forces saved the Delta region from falling to the North Vietnamese during, during Tet. That could have been. I mean, yeah. I didn't. I wasn't on land with them. Don't know everything they did. Remember, I was a second class then, and we got we were on the As, uh, the um, Ascarian uh, Benoit as uh, reconnaissance guys. To What's do. the Ascarian Benoit? What's they that? were APDs. What's that? Um, uh, amphibious. Some some kind of an amphibious ship. Yeah. Oh, okay. Both of them were big ones. And troop ships. One okay. was a troop ship. I think the Ascari was a troop ship. I'm not sure. Could have been the Benoit too, but they were pretty good size uh, ships, and they were right at uh, on the uh, right at uh, Dongtam, which was the Dongtam was had a big army base and a navy base. And late my third trip to Vietnam, I went back there as a seal, and it was a same same place, mm-hmm. same area. So when you, how did you guys get linked up with the 9th Infantry? Well, we uh, that's who we were doing the reconnaissance for, to see if they could oh, go okay. up the canals and up the rivers, you know, see what the depth was so they could bring the uh, the uh, Brown Water Navy up there, that the troop carriers and stuff like that for the 9th Infantry. And they didn't know what the depth of the, some of the places they were going to go in. So they dropped us off on these, uh, we call them the darts. <clears throat> they were like a jet ski. Right. Except you didn't sit up on them, you laid down on them, used your feet to uh, guide them. And they had a 355-degree camera and a fathometer. And they would take two of us up, drop us off, and we'd come down and do the reconnaissance. I mean, take soundings and uh, take pictures of known point like a pagoda mm-hmm. or another canal coming in or right. something. You know, we'd come back and we'd do a chart and we'd give it to them. And that's what they used, those charts, to go up and do their uh, amphibious landings. And the, and, <clears throat> but and, you could only go up those down those things maybe once yeah. or twice and then you didn't do it again because they'd be waiting for you. So when we weren't doing that, which you could only do so many of them, right. then we started riding with the 9th Infantry as their demo guys. <laughs> And and so you would would you have already seen it because you'd do the dart mission and then you'd come back and then they'd come up with their plan and then they'd say okay we're going to go up that river that you just came down and so you'd be from would you be familiar with it now no they took us we went up to four corners and other places that we'd never been oh, okay that was deep enough for them to go up and stuff but uh, they might have I don't know you know that would have been John Odish my OT that yeah. would have probably been in on the planning when they were going to go in something and talk about our charts and stuff right. you know remember I was just a booger eater <laughs> I was just one of the guys in the darts you know <laughs> and uh, and but then they said okay we're going to need you what were the log I know you were saying on the last podcast that they had these log dams at the, the oh yeah they'd put dams across logs and to stop the boats up and just different obstacles and shit or bunkers along and uh, we'd go in and blow up the bunkers or blow up the log dams, you know, if they had them. And that's what I said. They first put us on what they called an alpha boat, which was the lead boat. Mm-hmm. And they had one in the rear and one in the front. And um, <clears throat> what would they look like? Um, 
God, I, I don't have a picture of her. I could show you. Yeah, I actually, I actually anybody was looks it. looks up on yeah, the Ninth Infantry, a, they'll be able to see him. Yeah. But anyway, the Alpha boat, <clears throat> we were on one of those, and that's the one I told you we got sunk on because a B-40 rocket hit us right in the exhaust and the thing started going down and we ran it to shore. If it had been a little bit higher, it hit all those stacks of uh, C-4 we had. So, but And then they started putting us on about the third or fourth boat back. That's because they didn't it. want the big demo load yeah. <laughs> in the front Alpha yeah. boat? Yeah, that makes sense. Pretty much, Figured yeah. that one out. So your boat gets hit with a rocket and it starts sinking. And then the, the was it like a chief run in the boat? No, I was. It could have been. Like I a didn't chief know for a exactly first class or something. Were. Yeah, and they ran us up, and then it started sinking down, and we got off to a little perimeter, and then the um, a Zippo boat came up and just hosed everything down, and we swam over to the Zippo boat and got off. The Zippo boat, it's so a, named because after the Zippo lighter, because it has a flamethrower, yes, a big right, giant exactly, flamethrower. Yeah. I, I know. I popped this stuff off like people know what it is. <laughs> You'd had it been there to, to to see it, but I mean, it came zipping up, and then we swam over to it, and we got on it and got out of there. And you got everyone out of there? Or yeah, nobody got hurt or killed on that. Just that B forty rocket. And they started opening up, and our the boats opened up too, and they they had fifties. You know, Jesus Christ, twenty. Did you mil- did you try and salvage any of the demo? Or did you just leave it? Well, actually, or did you blow it in place? We were going to come back and do that, but they decided to have EOD do it. So okay. EOD went back and blew the boat up and all that crap. So yeah, because it was just partly out of the water and stuff. But they, you know, pissed us off. We're underwater demolition. It was like you know, WTF. You know, we could do that. <laughs> you know, that's what we do. You know. Yeah. Well, the EOD guys, I guess they didn't have a lot to do, so they sent them down there. Yeah. I don't know if it was Army or Navy EOD, but who knows? So anyway. It's always good to blow things up. That's one of oh, my, yeah. my first deployment to Iraq, we didn't blow very much up. And when I went to my second deployment to Iraq, I, I kind of had the attitude as if we had the opportunity to blow something up, we were going to blow it up. <laughs> it seems like the smart thing to do. You never in place. take it apart. Yep. Blow in place. You know? <laughs> blow it in place. <clears throat> and uh, that one, you know, on, on the last podcast, you were talking about that one operation that you went on and you it was basically a giant ambush against the whatever seven or eight boats that you guys had that the ninth infantry had and they must have been prepared waiting for you got for for this group to show up i mean were they was the enemy that well organized at that point i wouldn't say well organized but when you got psyops guys dropping pamphlets in saying uh you know, we may be doing something in this area, uh, you know, all the good guys leave and stuff like that. And, you know, PSYOPs had a lot to play with that or the choppers going around <clears throat> with their speakers and, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, on that particular one, there was another group of boats that went up ahead of us, dropped off their guys, the 9th Infantry, and were coming back and we passed them. And as soon as we got by them, I'd say about... Uh, 10 minutes and we got opened up on they didn't hit the first group they just hit our group and uh you know that was a that was a bad day in dodge city but it you know got hit really bad but managed to get to the shore and put some of the guys off and stuff and it was i think it was going to be a pincher movement where they came in Uh, and caught people because they dropped the other guys way off and there were three udt guys on that group and then there was three of us on the group that when we got uh, hit and your main mission was going to be demo if yeah needed. basically yeah but uh yeah yeah and th- those uh those big it's weird those are like straight up amphibious operations the army's mm-hmm. conducting 
Yeah, think about that. And the Marines were holding the DMZ. Yeah, yeah. You were saying that the Marines were busy upholding the DMZ yeah. at that time. Yeah, that kind of blew me away. That, the, but the Ninth Infantry did a good job. Yeah. I mean, they were fighters, you know, and they were out of Washington, the state of Washington, you know, and uh, they uh, they were good, good troops. Yeah. Man, um, what about uh, another different difference? I mean, even with the Ninth Infantry, those guys. I mean, in UDT, you guys are all volunteers. And I mean, and you said you would have been drafted had you not joined. What did you did you notice any difference between drafted guys and guys that were volunteers? Didn't really work with that many army uh-huh. guys in the ninth infantry. The only thing I can remember that stands out is I had a second lieutenant come up to me when I was on a riverboat, one of the riverboats. And they were about ready to land him, and he came up to me with his map and asked me where he was, you know. Ooh. And that kind of, I went, hmm, and that's the second lieutenant. And he's leading a, you know, platoon or squad of guys in, you know, that kind of, you know what I'm saying. I just don't know. I don't know. My thought of that was is we were trained, and we knew what we were going to do, just like in SEAL team. Mm. And we leaned forward, and that's what we were going to do. You're just picked off the street, go through basic training, and then you, uh, you know, next thing you know, you're up on a hill in Vietnam being overran and stuff. That's got to be pretty traumatic, you know. But then again, Americans are Americans. We fight, you know what I mean, regardless. But I think we were more psychologically set for what we did than your, because of the extra training we had and stuff. And plus the guys that trained us were a lot of more Vietnam guys, and like I said, Second World War in Korean, that gives you, I, I mean, with the type of job they did, yeah. that, that's what we do. You got wounded on that mission too, Yeah. right? How bad did you get wounded? Just some shrapnel on my foot and my leg, no big thing. Did you? Did it take you out of the field for any no, amount of time? No, not at all. In fact, I got up and started shooting along with this guy, uh, this other <laughs> that's guy. That's one but, thing you could do, hey. <laughs> But we had this uh, buddy of ours, I, th- I think I told you this, he got hit really bad with uh-huh. shrapnel on his arms and legs, and I crawls over to him after I moved my fingers and toes and everything and realized that we all got blown down. <clears throat> and then I uh, went over to him, hit him with morphine, put it through his collar, and then the 30-gunner uh, got blown off his gun. So I got up there and started shooting a 30. You know what I mean? No big thing, but it's just what you do, you know? Yeah. We're in an ambush. Yeah, I know. So it's no shoot, big thing. So, yeah, you, yeah. so you shoot <laughs> back. What and I then, uh, he got blown on the other side of him and crawls over to him, didn't see my pin through his collar, so hits him with another shot of morphine, you know? Yeah. And in about uh, four or five minutes, he kind of sat up like this and wanted to do something, but he was he was screwed. He Yo. was hurt really bad. And then me and I got up and started shooting and stuff, and <clears throat> the guys that were down and everything were, uh, after I, the 30 ran out of ammo, I started shooting 16s, and they would hand us up 16s to shoot and stuff, load them for us and shit. And then, like I said, the ramp went down. We started going in towards the beach to let the guys that weren't uh, wounded get off. And we started taking fire right through the front. So I went to one side, he went to the other side, and I was using a, a M79 to try to suppress fire and stuff. And we backed off, and then we got out of there. And did you insert any of the Army guys? Yeah, about eight or nine of them, yeah. And how big was how how many guys got inserted? It was like a company, a company strength. Yeah, not yeah. It was more than a company. It was eight boats. Oh, okay. there was a lot of people. About you can put about twenty five, thirty guys oh, okay. in the boats. Yeah, yeah. We were here. <clears throat> we and like I said, it was really a weird thing because uh, me and I were sitting there, and then everything just started 
fire going off, and we heard number one boats hit. We're number four boat. No, number three, number four, yeah. Number two boats hit. Number three boats hit. And I remember I just turned and looked at her and said, we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> and we got hit. And what it did is <clears throat> has a canvas cover, and they had all those uh, wire stretchers stacked up. And the B-40 rocket was heading right towards the... Uh, 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 um, the um, <clears throat> conning tower, you know what I mean, yeah. where they drive it and everything. But it went low and hit those stretchers, and it just went, you know, all that shit went out. So, did you bad. guys get good medical training? I mean, obviously, you knew how to give morphine. Well, UDT, yeah, <clears throat> pretty good. But in SEAL team, we had extensive mental yeah. medical training. In fact, the first platoon I went over is uh, we had our first class corpsman. Probably the best every week he would run us through something or other with soggy head wounds or something, mm-hmm. sucking chest wounds. And we had the same stuff that you guys did, uh, have the mannequins up in the woods, yep. and you'd have to run up and treat him and what to do. And we uh, learned to give ourselves uh, serum albumin in case the corpsman was hit or something. You need to give yourself an IV. We, we did all that stuff. Yeah. All of us carry that with us. Everybody had serum albumin, which is a blood volume expander. You know what I mean? Just yeah, in yeah. case you had to have it. But uh, UDT, not so much. We knew morphine. Right. We knew uh, basics, some of the basics and, <clears throat> you know, pressurized and tourniquets and stuff yeah. like that. But not, they, not real, real good in UDT. They, you know? they do a good job with that TCCC class that they yeah. teach now. The, I forget, you forget what it stands for, but it's good. <clears throat> Combat trauma. You yeah. guys learn that, and so they know what to do when somebody gets hit. Everybody in the platoon knows like <clears throat> a decent amount well, to get the guy stabilized. Like told us in the platoon, this is the one in 69, he says, uh, yeah, I'm the only corpsman here. And if I get hit, somebody's got to take care of me. So <laughs> yeah, he so he wanted to extensive <laughs> medical training. Good for him. Yeah. So uh, you get home from that deployment, and now, like you said, you, you, you knew you had enough of the naked warrior stuff, and you said, I want to get a big machine gun. But I will say that was one of the best deployments I was on, the guys and everything. The uh, UDT-12 at that time was comprised of Class 40, 41, and 42 and some of 43, but everybody knew everybody. You know what I mean? It was real tight and real good. And Subic Bay would put Guam to shame. Oh, I'm sure it would. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I say, after we'd been there for about three weeks, you you were ready to go to a, a, yeah. another debt just to get out of there. You need to go to die. Vietnam to stay alive. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, did, I never realized that you guys would go back to, uh, you know, back to Subic Bay in the middle of deployments. That's... That's kind yeah. Of- well, we would for <clears throat> then you'd head off to your next debt. Mm-hmm. Like I say, we uh, were there for nine months, and each debt was about three months. You know, what I mean, maybe mm-hmm. a little less, but we'd have some downtime in Subic, and then we'd head over to our next debt, which is pretty nice. You know, <clears throat> nine yeah. months is a long time, but still, you know. But actually, back in the day. Subic Bay was almost worse than Vietnam in some areas because uh, it was almost like the gangsters back in yeah. Chicago. You had all these uh, different gangs were after each other and shit. And when you was walking down McSaisa, you almost had to look around the corner to see if you know they were shooting at each other before you walked by and shit. It okay. was uh, it was pretty uh, kind of like the wild wild west. And you said that the whole UDT uh, twelve at that time was made up of all guys from the same. Like five or six buds classes, well, we had mostly guys that were there too from yeah. other classes. But it was a the majority of us that were put into the platoons and stuff were from class forty 
39 maybe. Yeah, 39 was ahead of us. They, a lot of them went, uh, some went to 12 too. They used to split them 11 mm-hmm. and 12. You went to a UDT team. Right. And then, uh, yeah, there a lot of more guys that were, you know, behind us. But remember, we only ran two classes a year in Buds. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Two classes a year? Yeah, because 39 was graduated. <clears throat> and then we started 40. Okay. And then we graduated, and that's when 41 was starting. You know what I mean? What do they run now, like five? Yeah, something like that, five, six. It was something like five when I went through. Yeah, I think so. So you had a good experience with UDT, but you still wanted to to go get it. Me and a guy named we'd put in the chit every month to go to SEAL Team, and they yelled at us and said, yeah, not until you get back, you know. So when we got back, we were the first two out of UDT into – cadre yeah. that's awesome and i was you know echo and i had a conversation i was talking about how at seal team one when i was in training cell seal team one we called ourselves cadre and i didn't really know where that came from but i knew that that was what it was called mm. and we were proud that we were cadre but then i, I was listening to the podcast that you you came on and you were talking about cadre and you guys actually called it cadre training that's what SQT was. Yeah. Was cadre. Yeah. And the guys that taught it were cadre instructors. Yeah. And that just carried on. Yeah, it carried yeah. on. <clears throat> Platoon training was different. You know, once you got in your, got out of SQT or cadre, then you went to a platoon, then you went through platoon training too. And that was still ran by some of the cadre some instructors. Of the cadre yeah, that. because we had our own training cell in Team 1. Team 1 training cell's been around that long, huh? It was, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was the only team. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and it wasn't another team. There was UDT guys and SEAL guys. Yeah. That workup or, or the cadre training, now you started getting heavy with field craft <clears throat> with, I mean. Oh, everything. Yeah, all every ambushes, you name it. And then we had the Alamo River we worked on. And the Alamo River is a lot like Vietnam. They actually set up a whole thing there mm-hmm. to look like a village. They had uh uh, little wooden outposts where they, you know, at the whole nine yard, yeah. you have to work your go down, get in, and work your way in and stuff. And it was just like Vietnam. It was pretty close. And, the, and the, once again, the people that are teaching you are seals that are in cadre now, who probably just got back from Vietnam, so they got fresh uh, information from the battle, okay, our, fresh our experience. Platoon training, our training cell in Team One. Every time a platoon came back, they'd pull two or three of the best guys from that platoon and put them into our training cell. And that was every platoon that came back, they did that. So you had a cross cut of all the different areas of uh, Vietnam and guys that had been in there that did well. And that that's who, uh, that's who during it. We had guys like and just some great guys. I mean, we got good training. And, I mean, there was no bullshit because they knew, <clears throat> we knew that what we learned there was going to save our asses and our buddies' butts. So we we uh, it got pounded into our heads. We did river and stream crossing a, a lot because you had a lot of rivers and, you know, small canals. Well, not small canals, but pretty good size. You either walked on them and up the other side or you went across them, you know. And like as a 60-gunner, I always carried about three uh, – UDTs with me, you uh, know, to help me f- float across. Uh, but I, I'm just saying, you had to judge the current right so when you went out, it would bring you right in where you're supposed to be and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Just a extensive training. The Alamo River's not real, it's a, not a real fast-moving stream, mm-hmm. but it has a good current in it. So you learned all that, you know what I mean? All You learned what you had to have, your gear you had. Like we'd do a, 
swimming pool stuff with our 60s and shit to see where we needed to have the flotation and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It was pretty good. Actually, when I went out to Nyland, we didn't even have the camp out there. We had uh, in Nyland itself, the town, there was a gas station and it had about four or five green, little green trailers. And that's where we stayed at. And then they they used to truck us up to where the uh, canal was Mm -hmm. to shoot and stuff. And a lot of times we'd go up there, then we'd run back and stuff. You know what I mean? And we'd go up to the Chocolate Mountains, up to um, uh, Beal Wells and stuff like that for ambushes and just, you know what I mean? We had no camp. There was no camp there. Siphon, siphon. What was that cipher? I can't remember the cipher yeah, number, I but I mean, all along that whole area. In fact, later on, when I was in platoons and stuff, we'd be going up Chalker Mountains, come back some other way, and you'd still see holes where Forty Mike Mike had went into and stuff. You know, from back in the how day. Much, you know? How much work were you doing at night? Oh, that's all the only time we worked. That's the only much. thing. We'd do our media action drills and stuff during the day and stuff, but all of our ambushes and all the other field craft that we did and everything was all at night because that's when we worked. And that was the that was the known thing. It was yeah. like, yep, we're gonna go out at night. That's what yeah, we do. Pretty much, yeah. How much did you guys did you guys go out? If there was a full moon, would you go out less in Vietnam? Would you go out less if there's a full moon? Because you had foliage and stuff, you couldn't see that well. But it's still dark enough. Because mm-hmm. sometimes in the desert, a full moon, it's almost like daytime. Oh yeah, there. yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And what you know, you're talking about gear a little bit and what you carried. And there's all these kind of myths about what guys were doing back in the day in, in, in Vietnam. One of them is blue jeans. Like, everyone wore blue jeans. Or a lot. A lot of guys wore blue jeans. Which kind of makes sense to me because they're tough, right? That was the whole reason was that mosquitoes wouldn't go through them. <clears throat> and if you're in mangrove and stuff, it wouldn't tear them and stuff. Ripstop would tear. And if you bent down, like when you stopped and stuff, mosquitoes would eat you alive right through the uh, ripstop and stuff. So we started wearing the... Uh, Blue jeans, and uh, you wanted to get zip-up blue jeans, not the button-up, because they also kept leeches, leeches. off. So if you had the button-up button ones, you were screwed. <laughs> and then sometimes we wore pantyhose underneath that to keep leeches uh. off us. But we'd take the Levi's and put them into our jungle boots and rigors tape them around so, you know, we'd, it, they wouldn't just be hanging down where shit could come up and stuff because there were a lot of leeches over there. No big thing, but, mm-hmm. I mean, you just you just learned, you know. And like I say, the pantyhose, it's pretty funny because when we were on sea float, <clears throat> guys would be walking around with pink and blue and yellow pantyhose on and stuff, and <laughs> sailors are giving us kind of some weird looks and shit, you know. <laughs> it's kind of funny. How about guys going barefoot? Well, we had a couple guys that do that, and guys stepped on stuff and uh, injured themselves. And that uh, I didn't see that very much at all myself yeah. uh, in my platoons. Maybe other platoons would tell you, yeah, that was a big thing. But a lot of times we don't walk on trails. We walk yeah. outside of the trails, and there's, there's all kinds of shit in there, and you don't want to uh, just be barefoot, I guarantee you. <clears throat> so you get done with that. Um work up and everything how about how about like your your you're a pig gunner hired stories about guys taking every round out of their belt and lubing every individual round especially stone i heard that about stoner gunners that they'd take every round out of their belt and lube every individual round and put it back in there is that not true i've never seen that happen and we had uh, four guys that carried the stoner machine gun in my last platoon but uh, I don't know why you'd take them out and put them back in. Yeah, they jammed a lot, but that was just a stoner thing. We sent our guys to uh, 
Cadillac gauge, which is who made the stoner, so they could learn all the intricacies and, and uh, what to do if something happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, the pig gun, the, the 60, you didn't have to worry about it that much. As long as you took care of that baby, it, it worked for you. The only time <laughs> I ever had a malfunction was uh, operator error, you know. Uh-oh. <clears throat> like having it slide down your arm. Okay. And uh, you get a link stuck in there or you're shooting it and you're, you have your do-rag around your neck and it gets caught and starts dragging <laughs> your head down like this, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I heard just, this story. Just things you learn, you know. <laughs> and I don't know who told me, one of the, one of the Vietnam uh, SEALs told me this story that, like, he had the, the um, he, had a, he was a stoner gunner and when he came back, he, he checked in his weapon and he was going and joined another platoon so he went to get a, a new stoner or not a new stoner but one of the stoners out of the armory and he got went and checked the stoner out of the armory and uh engraved in the buttstock of the stoner it said everybody must get stoned <laughs> which <laughs> which i always got a good no, kick that, out that, of. that could have been yeah <laughs> <clears throat> no it was uh but that 60 it was just um and you developed exactly uh like my basic load was about 630 because we had a 130-round uh, box okay. that we had China Lake made that go, went right on the side of it, and we slung it, you know, and shot it from the hip. But after shooting thousands of rounds from from the hip, you had really good eye-to-barrel coordination of exactly where that round was going to go. But even regardless, you always worked it in because mm-hmm. <clears throat> it wasn't a— uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a point weapon like a M14. Right. You know, it was a, it's an area weapon, but still mm-hmm. you can get pretty accurate with that son of a bitch. And you'd always walk your rounds in because, walk, you know, rounds ricocheting yep. off could uh, hit a guy just as well as hitting him right square in the chest or something. And um, I used canteen pouches and uh, carried uh, five campaign, canteen pouches around my waist, and I'd put 100 rounds in there and leave about uh, – an inch out of that got it and then when i would fire and i knew i was getting low i'd pop my lid open on my uh can i had grab my uh thing of my uh, 60 round snap them in and dump them in and close it or the lid when it opened up had ridges on the side and it would slide right in just depending you know but what was good about that box is you could be blown upside down or anything and still have that 130 rounds ready to shoot you yeah. know what i mean that's why we liked it but this place uh it was a, it's a Navy experimental place called China Lake, yeah. and we used to, we had them build them for us, and they worked really well. Did you use a sling? Yeah. <clears throat> what we did is we took the big butt plate off, put an aircraft butt plate on, uh-huh. and if you notice in the back, you have that round thing that, and we'd take a, we hooked it through that, bring it up and took a hanger and made it down real like this, and I put it around the front of the hanger so you could take it off when you're in a chopper uh, so you could hold it down. Okay. And then you could take it off, put it on, but you got it fit just right where it was just right exactly where you <laughs> wanted it to, and it worked great, you know. We were inventive fucks, man. We figured it out, you know. <clears throat> like we was on this one boat one time, and we saw these uh, 60 guys. They were uh, they had 60s on the boats, you know, and they had these big metal containers that the rounds went in. And we're looking at that, and it was a flex tube that went into the 60, and so... A couple of K bars later, we walked off with a couple of those, and they were fit perfect in the back of a Prick 77 uh, backpack. <clears throat> we could put them on, held 500 rounds, and you had the flex tube that went right into your 60. You had to have a special feed tray for yeah. that. You know what I mean? The feed tray, the, uh, the uh, feed tray was right on the end of the flex tube, so it set right in there perfect. So 
And then if we're doing an off the chopper charge the bunker off, you had uh, 500 rounds right there. And it was kind of neat. We're the only ones in Vietnam that had that. In fact, we came off choppers one time. We were doing parakeet ops. I'll tell you about that later. And uh, there was a whole bunch of army guides and stuff where we landed with the choppers were getting off, beating each other on the back and, and a couple of good firefights and shit, you know, and you can smell the quarter light coming up and everything. And we're all bearded and, you know, Levi's and you know, all that shit. And uh, they're saying, God damn, I told you we had mercenaries over here. <laughs> Was it mercenaries? And one guy says, no, that's seals. <laughs> So you guys had you guys were the originators of the predator pack. Pretty much, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think we were. They used them on the boats, but not on uh, not out in the field. You couldn't patrol did, it. Did you have to them? feed it? No, it, it just it fed itself. It fed itself right no, out kid, of the bottom. You didn't have to pull it or nothing. No, nothing. It just right through their butt. You had to be careful because if you took that thing off and laid it down and didn't put a nail through the uh, through the flex part of it, all your rounds would come out. Uh, so there you have this big pile of 500 <laughs> rounds that's not good, you know, especially if he's in a firefight and stuff, trying to put it back in. You know, I'm just saying, it's just funny. <clears throat> but it was uh, it was pretty good. Me and a guy named two of us uh, had those, and we fixed them up, just, just playing, looking at it, thinking, hmm. But you couldn't patrol at night with them on patrol because it would go clank, clank. You could hear them uh, moving. That was only if you are actually going off and hitting something. Like you say, there were three types of ops we'd go into if we knew we were going to take heavies. One was a down pilot and um, uh, another SEAL platoon in trouble and a bright light. What was bright light? That's a uh, prisoner of war, going in to hit them and get them out. But those three ops were the main main three we went into no matter what. Yeah, you know. yeah that's awesome. Um, you get So you finish your workup and... Now you're over, you go your first deployment to Vietnam. Was this Kilo Platoon? Yeah, Kilo. Oh, Kilo Platoon, Vietnam. And you're saying you were doing, the, the first podcast you were saying that you did dartboard operations, which was have a guy huck a dart, because you guys didn't have good intel, you didn't have good support. No, we, really. were, <clears throat> we were at a place called uh, New Nam Can, and it was a Vietnamese uh, fire base out in BF Egypt, you know. And, uh, and we were here, and then down here you had the river and seafloor where our other squad was. But our squad got put up here. That was the one I So just you. one squad out there by itself? Yeah. Oh, dang. With the Viet- Vietnamese guys. They had a fire base there. Okay. And there was not good intel, so you basically would throw a dart at the dartboard. And then do what? Go do an ambush there? Go set an ambush, basically? Just go out and look, set up ambush or something, see what was out there. Go patrol? Yeah. And that... And you also were inserting primarily on, on sandpans during that deployment? Pretty much. Otherwise, we uh, about three times we walked out of the fire base and walked back in, and that's just that doesn't give you warm and fuzzy, you know, because uh, change guards and stuff, and you come back in, and all they see is moving out there, and maybe they don't know what the uh, bona fide is for you coming back in and shit. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, we didn't do a lot up at New Namcan because of that. And we only had sandpans. We didn't have any of our boats up there, none of the mediums or lights or anything. So uh, <clears throat> after we'd been up there for about a month, I think, month and a half, then they brought us, uh, maybe two months, and then, then they brought us down to sea float. Okay. And then we started doing some good ops down there. The sandpans, how big is a sandpan? How many guys could you fit in it? Oh, four or five. So you take two sandpans? Because we were heavy. Yeah, right. we'd take two sandpans. Take two sandpans. Yeah. <clears throat> Have you ever gotten into a sandpan? No. They're <laughs> not a real stable boat. <laughs> 
Vietnamese are good in them because yeah. they're small, but you get about five big Americans in there, and it's uh, you have to be real careful. <laughs> and are you rowing it? No. <clears throat> it's got a little motor yeah, on the, the back, yeah. The little, like, We usually had a VN with us that, oh, okay. uh, that we could put along with us. It wasn't just ourselves, no. And then and then someone would stay with the boats? Yeah, yeah. The, the, go the VN would stay or with the boats or they'd leave and come back and get us, you know. But you didn't start working a lot until you got to sea float. Yeah. And, and then we, what kind of ops were you doing on a sea float? Uh, same thing, uh, uh, ambushes and going up rivers, setting up ambushes. And that's when I told you, I think, it would, you know, I get a little bit confused sometimes on PBRs and Swifts. I'm thinking they were PBRs that were down at sea float with mm-hmm. us. But they would, uh, we'd go up on the uh, PBR and have a Boston whaler with us. And a Boston whaler could probably hold four or five guys, you know. Plus the guy on the front with a 60 and uh, the guy driving it. Well, the way we had worked that is we had the whole platoon there. One platoon would be going to do something. Well, two guys out of the other, I mean, uh, one squad would go up. And two guys from the other squad, luckily, got to pick to be the uh, driver sitting up on a thing driving the uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the uh, uh, Boston Whaler and the other guy in the 60s why everybody else was just looking over the edge like this and didn't get there again it wasn't you didn't get real excited when you were chosen to be the uh, the coxswain you know how often <clears throat> would you guys make enemy contact when you guys go out on ambush because that had to be kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack right yeah we do <clears throat> Got some contact. That was the one down at the square bay I told you about when we hit the when I wasn't on that up when they hit that junk and then all them other flares started yeah, popping up yeah, and they yeah. realized and, and a few other times we got in some uh, some crap but that particular that that platoon and that deployment wasn't we didn't do an awful lot. We went out a lot, right. don't get me wrong, but we didn't get in a lot of firefights and stuff. It was my second platoon yeah. where we uh, kicked ass and took and, names. And it sounds like, I mean, this is sort of classic, and you and I were talking about this earlier today. If you don't have good intel, that's you, it. you can and go out on the ambush all day even long. Even down but, in the seafloor, we didn't have that good of yeah. intel. You know, and like we didn't have a chief of a platoon. We had an LPO, and uh, <clears throat> no ma- mention of any names, but he wasn't real good. But we had this other guy, that chief corpsman, I told you, not chief, but that uh, corpsman, mm-hmm. It was a first class, and he kind of took over everything. He had been with the Marines twice oh, okay. to Vietnam, so he was a good hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Had his shit together, was smart, and just uh, a couple funny things happened. It was down the seafloor, I told you, where that pile of clothes moved and stuck his head <laughs> up. Oh, you're looking for me? We thought we had lost him, you know? And that was like the chopper comes in and lands two of them did one was pretty shot up and door gunner had been hit so they said hey uh anybody want to be a door gunner we got to go back and pick up some other guys well of course as a corpsman yeah i'll go so he's in udts he throws a flak jacket on the helmet and takes the door gunner position Damn. you know and they take off and about a half hour later the chopper comes back in and lands shot up even more harry gets off the i mean uh <clears throat> He gets off the boat, throws his helmet down, takes his flat jack off. Fuck, I'll never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those uh, we, when we had um, this guy, Colonel Colonel Reeder on, who was a uh, pilot in Vietnam. He flew Cobras in Vietnam yeah. in his second deployment. But those guys, those pilots in <clears throat> Vietnam, the helicopter pilots in Vietnam, they did not. They knew they were going to take rounds. They just went in anyways. Yeah. They, they were badass. That was the same as our Sea Wolves and the Black Ponies, but the Sea Wolves, especially, were just unbelievable guys you know just uh they were just badass dudes man they uh and i I told you that one story didn't i about that one chopper 
No, so we're so. kind of pinned down behind this rice dike, and we're getting some pretty heavy fire from the uh, tree lines. So we call in for uh, closer support, and it's the sea wolves, you know. So we're getting up, shooting, getting back down my 60, and we're getting kind of low on ammo too, except the sea wolves. We always had ammo staged on the sea mm-hmm. wolves so they could kick it off to us when they came in. So the sea wolves were coming in, we could hear the rotors. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, when the sea wolves weren't doing, they were the greatest. When they weren't doing uh, close air support, they'd do psyops. They had these great big speakers. So we hear this one sea wolf coming in behind us, and we're still shooting everything. All of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, I swear to God, you hear this, we are the gods of hellfire, <laughs> and we bring you fire. And the fucking rockets <laughs> went over our head and hit the tree line, and they either had a 50 or a minigun on one side of the uh, sea wolf. And that sea wolf turned like that and just holds it down. I think that one had a minigun on it. Then right behind came another sea wolf. But when they when we heard that, we were like, everybody just stopped shooting, and we looked back up like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, dude. It was unreal. And, that, so just and then so they everyone... didn't really suppress the fire, so then the Black Pony, they had 2.7 rockets, and the Black Ponies came in with the 5-inch Zoomies. Mm-hmm. And when they hit the, hit the tree line, it was blowing shit clear up over our head, Dang. and that pretty much squelched it. It was yeah, done, and we got do out of there. The Sea Lords came in, the regular Hueys that picked us up and got us out of there. That was that was a good op, though. The, uh, the Sea Wolves were the Navy... Uh, Pilots, Navy Vietnam gunships, pilots, yeah. gunships that came and supported. They weren't like Cobras. They were regular humans. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were set regular. Up with yep. rocket pods. And I think, uh, <clears throat> like the uh, Black Ponies had the uh, 20 mil- millimeter uh, guns in the front and then the 5 in Zoomies. They had the just the rocket pods, but they had a 50 on one side mm-hmm. and or a, uh, a, 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 a minigun on the other side. And the most important thing that they had from everything I've heard and from what you're telling me right now is they had balls. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were good. <laughs> they would just come in and... We got drunk one night at our bar and uh, Sea Wolves are on the Army side. And that's where they had their thing. So we figured, hell, we'll go over and visit them and have them drink with us. So we jumped in our six by and headed out. We were... They had the Army base here and the Navy base here. We lived on the Vietnamese side and had our own own barracks all fortified it was perfect so anyway we got in our six by and was heading out went over to where the sea wolf guys were we wanted them to drink with us you know and we had our 60s with stuff you never knew you know so we get over there and go walking in their compound and everything all right boys get up let's drink well see we made them drink with us naked because we were all naked so we're all sitting there drinking beers you know, naked. <laughs> uh Nakedness, <laughs> M60s, and booze. Yeah. I like where this is going. Yeah, so you good. guys had way much, way more fun in Vietnam than we oh, had. Oh yeah, in we, Iraq. we had a good you. time. I'm telling you, we weren't. Uh, we'd, we'd get back from an op, do our debrief, clean our weapons, and go up and get shit faced. You know, that's another thing. Colonel Reader said the same thing. He goes, he goes, yeah, you know, we'd go out, we'd fly, we'd get shot up, we'd have to come back and like put the birds in for repair, and then we'd get drunk. Yeah, and then we'd go, and he goes, I don't know. And he, he really like looked at me and he said, I don't know how you guys did it without <laughs> alcohol, basically is what he was oh, saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I was a, you know, went to Desert Storm. We were over there nine months and no alcohol yeah. and stuff. It was okay. But I mean, to me, it was just like, yeah, this isn't my war, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You know, we really didn't do that much in, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the guy did recons and stuff right, up from right. Mishab, and we did that one deception up in the, when we inserted the Kuwaitis and yep. shit. During the, and then that's, outside of that, they never really got into uh, firefights yeah. and shit, you know. Yeah. Now that that op with the Sea Wolves, that was I'm assuming that was on your second deployment to, yeah, to Vietnam. Yeah, that was because your one, first yeah. your first deployment, you know, you did what you did, but it wasn't as fruitful. No, I it, it, to me, to tell you the honest, I got truth coming out of UT and the SEAL team. I was ready to hit the deck running, and it just seemed like we didn't hit the deck running mm-hmm. over there, and <clears throat> just didn't have the intel. I don't think our as you were saying, leadership was all that good and stuff. I mean, we had one guy, the LT, they were doing some shit down in uh, Seafloat. Mm-hmm. But up where we were, we just didn't, you couldn't. It yeah. just wasn't that much you could do. You would go out and look, try to find shit and everything, but we didn't have actionable intel yeah. that we could react on, you know, which you found out later, that's what you have to have. Sometimes, too, I think people spread their forces too thin. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about it, you just take a squad and put them out there in the middle of nowhere with no intel support, and you got another squad in some other area with no intel support. You know, you might as well bring them together, put a couple guys yeah. together intel, and you start making something happen. Well, the platoon before us that was there and stuff, that uh, that was platoon. Those guys gotten a lot of shit, you know what Dang. I mean? That's when he got his Medal of Honor and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And uh, actually, my second trip over, had been in that platoon, you know what I mean, and yep. he, uh, told me some stories about it. They got in a lot of shit, but uh, that's, we were stuck at New Namcan and just didn't, well, shit, right, you could see the Yumin Forest, which was at the very southern part of Vietnam, and it's just triple canopy, just, I mean, it's, we were away from that a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, this old Vietnamese guy there, he had tattoos all over, and I guess he had fought with the French against the Viet Minh, you know, mm-hmm. which was the bad guys fighting the French, mm-hmm. same as VC, and <clears throat> we were through an interpreter, we were talking to him, and I like, God damn, you men force, you know, that's a, so he says, yeah, a whole uh, uh, company of uh French Four Legion paratroopers jumped in there, and none of them ever came back out. And we're going, hmm. <laughs> Plus, that's when I was telling you on my last uh, podcast I did, that's where we landed, and we're just starting to put our shit away. And the Sloach lands, and it's a prude visor, and a good friend of mine, real good friend of mine now. And then when that loach took off, we got the ship mortared out of it for about two hours. And that's when we told him, don't ever come here again, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So now when you get back, you get back, you do another workup and well, actually you got out for a little bit. Yeah. You come back in, you decide, you know, that's like when I went to college, I, I had to go, I had to get my, once I got my commission, I had to go to college and people would say, Oh, what'd you learn in college? And I'd say, I learned in college. Never, ever, ever, ever get out of the teams ever. <laughs> that's what Same I with in me. College. You know, it's the same deal. Yeah. So, uh, you, you get out for a year or something and you come back in and getting your your second platoon getting ready to go to Vietnam. Was that November platoon? Yes. Okay. Was, he just passed, and what a great guy. I well, mean, I, Was he the platoon commander? The yes, platoon, he was platoon the LT. Dai Wee, LT. You know, he's a yeah. great guy, just a great guy, man. He, uh, and he just passed here uh, about three weeks ago. Okay. We went up in Rosecrans, and they buried him and stuff. But he was a great guy, man. And that workup, that workup, did it did did much change between your first workup at SEAL Team and your second one? Actually, when I got out, 
<clears throat> came back in, I went back through cadre. Oh, okay. Just to, you know, kind of get yourself refreshed. It had been about a year I was out. You know what I mean? And it just, what that's the way you did it in Team 1. Mm-hmm. If you were gone way over six months or something, you went back through cadre. Just uh, even the guys that came from the East Coast, you know, yeah. just so they'd know how we worked and stuff, which was good. While I was going through cadre, <clears throat> Jerry Fletcher was out there with his platoon, and I got to know him, and uh, I knew some of the other guys in the platoon, so... As soon as I got out of Cadre, they lost a guy in their platoon, and lucky enough, I was good enough to get into it. So I didn't go through the whole workup okay. with November platoon. I just got in it, and uh, that's when I was telling you was down at the Ream Field. They used to have a firing range down there, and uh, <clears throat> I was figuring out, man, I might shoot something else. And I, you know, that's when I uh, actually asked the first. That's when I picked up a sixty. Me and this guy, um, we shot at this creosote log. Pieces flew off the creosote log, and we set it on fire. And I remember looking at he looked at me, and it was like, we're in. So that that was it. Yeah, the 60s is a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? Oh, it's a great thing. <laughs> so this next uh, deployment, and you mentioned this on the, on, the, on the first podcast when you came on, about the orders that you got from... Was it from Mac V Sog? Is that who you're getting orders from? Yeah, Nav Four V. Nav Four V. Okay, yeah, so. and we landed in Saigon, and our LT Dai went up to uh, to see where we're going to go, uh, what area we're going to work in, what province, you know. And he went up there, and they told him, "Well, you got the Vinlong province, which is where Dong Tam is and stuff." And he said uh, his orders were to pacify it. Damn. That was it. And uh, we brought it. He uh, picked up a whole bunch of money so we could pay our Kit Carson scouts and right. stuff like that. And we went to Dongtam. Well, we stopped at Ben Luck first. It's about 40 miles away from Dongtam. And there was another platoon there, Gary Gallagher's platoon. Mm-hmm. And we shows up in our six buys and stuff. And we're kind of rugged looking because we'd been in Saigon for three days and <laughs> <clears throat> having a good time and shit. And comes walking out and he looks at us he goes god damn you guys look like you've been here six months already (laughs) (laughs) you know we was a little bedraggled and shit then we went to Dongtan, but we used to go back and forth yeah was in that platoon they just had some great guys yeah and they were like i said they were our sister platoon you know so we'd go and see each other once in a while would the sister platoons deploy at the same time no they had been over there for three months okay so was it like a overlap of three months between the platoons some of them yeah. yeah The two of them may go at the same time. But usually when you got there, there was another platoon somewhere around you, whether East Coast or West Coast. Mm-hmm. Of course, East Coast had two platoons over there. So Vung Tao, I'm thinking it was Vung Tao. God, I'm still trying to think of that name. It's right on a river, and that's where the East Coast platoon was. We never, Nabe, that's where it was, Nabe. And that's where the East Coast platoon yeah, was? Yeah, they had a platoon there, and they had a platoon in Mito, and that was their two platoons. And then we took over when they left. We took over the one at Dong uh, at Mito, but we moved to Dongtam because we didn't want to be right in the middle of a a city, you know, mm-hmm. or a big big uh, oh, town yeah, or city. Yeah. So we moved down to Dongtam, and then the Navy base didn't want us. <laughs> the Army base didn't want us, so they put us in the Vietnamese base. That split them. So there you go. Yeah, and that was good. We had our boats right there. Everything was perfect. We go to the Army base. The test fire weapons and shit, and they were doing that all the time anyway, so it wasn't. It's another thing. I wonder how Mito, how they test fired their weapons and shit. Anyway. So uh, what was your op tempo like when you were on the second deployment with second November? second deployment was, uh, we'd go out about <clears throat> every two to three days. 
because you had to gather intel and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, and then we'd get a little break. And if we were real bored, <clears throat> we'd do what we called parakeet ops. And uh, there was this area. I don't know if I talked about this in the first podcast, or so. not, but it was a place called the Plain of Reeds, and it was all enemy. It was all VC. And so we'd take off uh, four or five of us in a um, Huey and have a, a sea wolf in front and back of us. And we'd just fly out there, start looking, go over go over small hamlets and villages, and if you see VC running around and get shot at, they'd land us, we'd sweep through, then they'd pick us up and we'd go look for some more, you know. That's when we were bored, you know. We called them parakeet ops. <laughs> then the uh, when we hit and started spreading around, the sea wolf would go off. I mean, not sea wolf, but sea lord, which was our Huey, and then the sea wolves would start circling, looking for squirters and stuff, you know. So uh-huh. it was good. We might get in two or three firefights, you know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that was daytime ops, you know. Yeah, so you're just running those daytime ops, and what you would, yeah. you would just look at the map and say, hey, this is probably a well, good no, spot. We knew, yeah, the Plain of Reeds, the whole place was a right. uh, 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 VC stronghold. Yeah, VC stronghold, and a lot of VC out there. So, and then that's when uh, we took a couple of the Australians with us on that, those parakeet ops and stuff, and it blew them out of the water. (laughs) How'd they like it? Did they come back for more? Oh, yeah. We we had two groups come down with us, and me and that went up to Nui Debt, where the Australian SAS were, and went out with them, and that was pretty pretty unique, yeah. (laughs) My 60 and about 500 rounds and a 120 pound pack and walked around for about uh eight days i was real happy about that dang yeah that's no joke but it was good they were they were great troops and uh you know they loved coming down working with us because we got contact and uh when they you know up there they look for things to see if what they could find they had two types of things they had a five-man fighting patrol or a 10 i mean a five-man recce or a 10-man fighting patrol when we went out with them, it was a 10-man fighting patrol because we were going to go into this area that the Australian armored infantry had taken over this uh, North Vien- NVA, North Vietnamese Army base camp and just decimated it. Well, our job was to go see if any of the NVA had moved back into the area or not. And it was good. Best, like I said, my first podcast are the best reconnaissance guys I've ever ever worked with, and they're fighters too. Yeah, they're good, 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 uh, good troops. Yeah, a lot, for some reason, a lot of people ask me if you've ever worked with foreign troops. Everyone want to kind kind of wants to know what we think of their countries and their troops, you know, and uh, you know the Brits and the Aussies. You well, know, the SAS are top shelf, for, and, uh, for sure. <clears throat> they're the only ones that went out with us on patrol, and I think we're in Vietnam. We were the only ones that went out with them, you know. And uh, it all started out with uh, a couple of SAS guys drinking in a bar with a couple of our guys and pooper pats and telling tall tales and, you know, drinking beers and shit. Next thing you know, we had this exchange and it's been ongoing yeah. since. Yeah. Yeah. Always. When yeah. I was a team one, there was always a, a an SAS guy there. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you, when you went to go, did you get to go to Australia? I never no? went. No. Oh, you'd love it. There. Yeah, Barracks I know. That's what everyone tells Barracks me. And shit. It's great. I always got uh, I always got screwed out of going to Australia. Yeah, I went for there some five reason. times after Vietnam, and <laughs> hell, there were still guys there that had been to Vietnam with from the SAS. You know what I mean? It was good. It was great. Yeah, I I always got screwed for some reason. I'd always go, well, yeah, yeah, we're gonna go to Australia, and some something would come up, and we wouldn't get to go. <clears throat> That's because your platoon officer wasn't very well liked, or something. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely. What uh, when you said you're getting contact a lot, so you're doing an op every two, three days. 
How often are you guys getting an enemy contact? Just about every time we went out because we were going out on actionable intel. Yeah. You know what I mean? And shit, uh, <clears throat> I can't think of all of it. Like that one time I was telling you, and another time we hit these two hooches and guys came out. It was like the OK Corral, except we won. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> another time we was doing this recon, just looking, and this one guy. Um, gets up on top of this bunker because we couldn't find any entrance around it. They may have had a tunnel coming into it somewhere and he's up there and I'm standing here and this guy who has a six, he's there and we're kind of watching the area for him while he's up there looking around and tune, 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 right by me comes this AK-47 rounds and they miss me. I don't know how the hell they miss me. But uh, then uh, jumps off the, the uh, bunker down right beside me and is going, yeah, the guy's over there, the guy's over there and me and they're yelling and we'll shoot the son of a bitch. <laughs> Finally, we saw where his rounds came in and we started shooting. Another time we got pinned down a little bit and we were going to go in and hit this, uh, check this hospital out and stuff. And we got hit pretty hard and we had to pull back and, you know, move out. That might have been when we got pinned down, you know. Was that when you called them the Sea Wolves? Yeah. yeah. We called them in a few times, you know. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because people think that. Every time you go out, you're going to get enemy contact, and you could see. I mean, your first deployment, it was rare that you'd get enemy contact. Mm-hmm. The second time, it's a lot more often. Yeah. Like my first deployment to Iraq, we got in like I don't know, like four or five firefights, maybe, and they were all pretty like not not really a big deal. And then when I was a troop commander in Ramadi, the, the platoons were getting into it all the time. Yeah, I, I mean, know. I, I, almost I, every not not almost every, but a lot of the times. I mean, a majority of the times there'd be there'd be shooting going on. You know. Yeah, so. I might tell you, I've talked to a lot of guys that were in your platoon in Ramadi, and they, uh, they'd they follow you to the <clears throat> the hell if they had it. They loved you. So just letting you know, you uh, had a real good impression, and you you were outstanding. So well. Just telling you, that that's for my guy. You know, talking to the guys in the ground, drinking and stuff, when your name comes up, and, you know. Well, they're drunk, I guess. That's yeah. that's the reason. No, I'm just telling you. <laughs> just letting you know, you know. Well, those guys were, uh, those guys did. Those guys actually, never mind they would, they did. They they did all kinds of stuff that was above, way above and beyond the call of duty for sure. And uh, God well, bless you fought the fight. Them. You took it to them. That's what, that's what you're supposed to do, you know? Yeah, it was, uh, it, was a, it was an awesome deployment. Awesome deployment with working with awesome guys for sure. Yeah, hell, we went out one time and uh, we heard there was this cachet, you know, so. But we didn't want people to know that we were going out there, so we got into a refrigerator truck and hid in the back of that until they got close to where the cachet was, and then we went out and dug it up and came back. Just little things, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a neat op. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that is good stuff. When, um, when you get back from that deployment, and that was the last November platoon was the last fully deployed to Vietnam. Yeah, and you didn't get any. You didn't go back to Subic when you were in a SEAL platoon, did you? No, that was like no. In you country stayed the there whole the whole time. Yeah. Well, you did get two weeks or a week or two weeks, I think, of R and R, and I think I went to Hawaii and Thailand one time. So Echo supports your choice of going to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. He's from Hawaii, so yeah, yeah Hawaii isn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> nope, it's not. Kind of weird though, going to Hawaii and everything's all quiet and peaceful and everything, and you just come out of the woods and yeah. you know after you've been there for a while, you're, you 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 kind of want to go back. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd have went to Thailand, I probably would have stayed in Thailand, and still yeah. been there now, and I'd probably be dead. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot. There's a lot having, of people that yeah. 
go to Thailand and don't come nah, back. Bangkok makes the hard man humble. <laughs> I guarantee you. <laughs> Did uh, I remember last time we talked about this blue on blue that you guys had? Was that in November platoon? No, that was in uh, Kilo. Oh, that was in Kilo. Platoon. Yeah, and that was our. Um, that was our the officer that was with us yeah. up in uh, New Namcan. And it was like I say, it was supposed to be a hammer and anvil op. It just went wrong. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if he was uh, stood up to shoot or if he was trying to wave and tell him right. to stop shooting. Anyway, he got hit, you know, and killed him. So, and, and then we almost had another in November platoon. I forgot to mention this. So we're hitting this island. It's not a big island, but it had hooches all along one side. <clears throat> so they wanted us to go through and check out the hooches and we had what we called white mice with us they were vietnamese intel guys that could look through things and find out if there's any vc stuff you know what i mean mm -hmm. sort of thing so we lands and we're sweeping through it and i had this one white mice with me and i had my 60. well the guy that planned this op and thought it was a good idea was our debt golf guy and Deck Golf was your senior seal, was at Def Golf, and he was kind of in charge of all the other platoons that were spread out. And um, so we did it, and he was with us, and his interpreter. So, And we were told, everybody stay on this side when we patrol, because anything on the left side is a free fire zone, mm -hmm. right? So we're walking along, and I'm looking at the woods, and also I see this flitting through the woods. So I bring my 60 up, take it off a safe, and I'm watching. Well, where the woods were, there was a space in another part of the woods where I wanted the VC, who I thought it was, to get out in the space. And then I'd hammer him, you know, open up with my 60. And uh, we were spread out a little bit because everybody was checking different things out as we're going along. So I had it off safe. I am just have laid it up on this uh, rice, rice bag, you know, with rice on it and just waiting. Who comes out? But the, the, uh, the lieutenant commander, the dead golf guy, I was so fucking pissed. If I'd have been a new guy, I'd have opened yeah. up, you know what I mean, maybe killed him and uh, things. So I told uh, Jerry Fletcher, my LT, about it, and he never went out with us again. Because mm -hmm. that was crazy. He was on yeah. the free fire zone, Eesh. you know what I mean? And like you say, what if I'd been a brand new guy or something? Yeah. You know, but I wanted to wait till he got out so I had a clear picture before I opened up on him. Yeah. I mean, even your mindset wasn't even let me confirm this is a bad guy. You knew it was a bad guy. You were just waiting for the, him, yeah. the bad oh, guy. Yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. I wasn't saying hey, that might be one of our guys. Yeah. I knew it was a bad guy because we had already briefed heavily. Everybody stay on this side. Anybody over there and you see him open up on him. You know, when I was running training, man, I, I worked those guys. They would have blue on blues all the time in training. I mean, we would just make stuff so confusing and just put the enemy in the wrong place and get guys confused. I wanted them to have blue on blues in training so they realized how easy it is to happen. So you get a guy, instead of making that decision, like, oh, I'll just, you know what, there's probably get a good vantage point over here if I just walk over here and they'll know it's me. You know, it's like, no, they won't know it's you. They'll kill you. So, yeah, it's, uh, man, you gotta, people don't understand how confusing it gets out there, man. It gets no, confusing. It does. That's, that's where your training in your, like I was telling you, though it saved our butt in Vietnam was our immediate action drills and have them so ingrained into us that it's dark, you know exactly where the guy's going to be and what you're going to do. Yeah. Whether it's a peel off or whether you're going to the right or left, you know what I mean? Yeah. Getting out of the, uh, the, the fire zone, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. But you had to have that, man. Those immediate action drills to me are the key no matter what you're doing, yeah. whether it's urban or I think which I can't really say. No, it's I the same thing. Guy, it's yeah. the same thing in an urban environment. You got to have immediate well, action. Well, just drills. like, <clears throat> say you have a hooch there, 
and you're going to hit the hooch, you know, and we know there's probably bad guys in it. Then we're coming in. What we do is two guys would branch out to the right or left to get anybody from behind. Mm -hmm. The rest would go in. One guy would turn around and look that way, and the guys would go in, and that way they could shoot, you know, uh, 180. Yep. You know what I mean? And nobody was down. Now if the hooch was covered and had foliage around it, then as we came in, one of the guys on the left would go down, lay down, look behind. The other guy would be right here at the corner so he could see anybody coming out a window. And then we'd have the other guy over here. And then we'd go in and hit it. But what I'm saying is when we did that, it was like that. Yep. I mean, that and that was our immediate action stuff that we did. That's how we'd hit a hooch. Yeah. And then when guys went in, they'd switch. One would swing high, one would swing low, just yeah. to you know to check it out. Then they'd go through. Then they'd say clear, or we got someone. And then whoever was right next to the door, <clears throat> facing out, because we had our security and didn't know if anybody was going to come behind you, is they'd bring the guy out. Like I had my sixty, I'd stick my sixty right between his legs and. He'd fall down, then I'd put my 60 in his mouth and go, shh. He wouldn't say much, you know. <laughs> and we'd take off. <laughs> yeah, that, that, you were talking about how the SAS, one time you went out on patrol with the SAS, and they went out, they, you were out there for like 10 days, and no one said a single word Not a the word. whole time. And if you did say something, you put your ear right next to the guy's, or your mouth, yeah. right next to his ear and talk. But yeah. uh, normally it was all hand signals. But like what you're talking about, all the stuff that you just described, you do all that stuff without talking. Everyone yeah. just knows where to go. It's oh, boom. Yeah. It's a standard operating procedure. It's the immediate action drill, and everybody knows exactly what to do. And yeah, that's just like you get a booby trap or something. The smartest thing to do is back away and come in a different way. But if you had to keep going, you'd feel it with your hand and grab the guy next to you behind you and show him where it was. Then you'd step over it, move on a few steps, wait till he got over it by grabbing the guy behind him, and you just keep moving. Yeah, that, you, how often would you guys do that? Not too often. We, we did run into him occasionally, but we were kind of lucky. We never hit. Plus, you'd see a... a <clears throat> you'd be able to pick up the signs if you did happen to go on a trail. Mm -hmm. You could see broken branches uh, facing it a certain way or little little sticks pointing a certain way or, or actually we got landed one time in this uh, rice paddy and we looked after we got off everybody started looking around and all you could see was two doy signs which meant minefield Eesh. so we didn't move you know we just called the choppers back in and got on and took off <laughs> so your your second deployment to vietnam how many casualties? How many casualties? No one got killed, right? No, we didn't get anybody hit or killed. No one got hit or killed, despite getting in all those gunfights. Yep. Don't ask me. But it's just <laughs> one of those things. God's a frog, man. Yeah, we we figured, you know, we we're getting to the point. That's why we had six month deployments and not a year. Yeah. Or you know whatever, because uh, you start get feeling like you're uh, invulnerable, you know. Yeah. But <clears throat> we were on the cutting edge, and uh, we just had the firepower. We were better. I mean, you could have had the odd shot, like that one yeah. one that went right by me or something that could have hit me right in the chest. No, or, you had too much skill to get hit yeah. in the chest. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't skill. That I was know. pure luck, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, uh, unfortunately, in combat, you can do everything right, and you can still get killed, and, and you can time, do all kinds of things we, wrong and live. We did that stay-behind ambush that one night. I think I told you about that. I don't think so. Okay, so about our second op we had in Vietnam, thought hmm we're going to go in and hit this one area here and if nobody's in the uh the little village or anything like that then we're going to do a stay behind ambush and so a squad of us went in and patrolled through through some uh 
Willie Peter and the Hooches and shit like that and just kind of caused hate and discontent. <laughs> and then the sun started going down. So as soon as it started going down, we got in an L-shaped ambush being where rice paddies were going this way, that way and stuff. And then we had the other choppers uh, came in like they were going to pick us up. We had our other squad on it. They got off the chopper, ran around it, and got back in it like we were being extracted, right? So we sat there and sat there for about uh, 45 minutes, almost an hour. And all of a sudden, here these guys come walking down this rice dock with AK-47s and shit and stuff. And uh, we opened up on them and, you know, blew them off the rice dock and shit. And then they opened up on us from the uh, tree line, hit them a little bit. The seawolves came in, did some damage and shit. And then the fucking chopper came in. There was only one of them, so we all couldn't get on it. We landed with two choppers, you know. So me and another guy, uh, a radio man and uh, a stoner guy and myself, stayed there while that chopper went. Longtown wasn't too far away. Come back and picked us up, you know. And my Dang. pooper was a little tight, tight on that and stuff. Uh, <laughs> how know. long? How long were you sitting on the ground? Oh, about another twenty minutes, thirty that, minutes before be they came and got us. But nobody came into the village Dang. after that because we had we had hammered them, you know, pretty yeah. bad. So. And that was pretty good, but that was a brilliant op. Anyway, so I'm shooting my 60. He's over here shooting his 40 Mike Mike, and there's a small stream between us. And we got back. We're drinking beers, patting poopers, you know, telling tall tales and shit. And he says, God damn, didn't you see that fucking string of rounds that went right by you on the stream? And I says, no, because <laughs> I shoot my 60, you know. Yeah. It was pretty neat. You know what I mean? Yeah. We had some good times over there. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's an amazing deployment to do yeah, all that Yeah, that was damage. a stay-behind ambush classic, yeah. pure. I mean, just the way you want to do it. They knew we were there. They thought we had left. They came in, and we, we got the son of bitches, yeah. you know. And then they always say, you know, did you shoot a guy yourself? Well, you know, when you open up with stoners in the 60s and you see guys flying off of rice stacks and shit, you're not sure if it's yeah. your 60 that hit him or if it's a stoner or whatever, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it's only one time I know I hit a guy. For a fact, is that off the that when we came off the choppers and did that OK Corral thing? Oh yeah. Well, then me and a guy, another guy, went around the before the squad continued moving by. We wanted to check out the back, you know. So he and I was walking around, and he had a car. He was our corpsman, and I saw him walk around the edge and fire about three times. And I stepped by. He missed the guy. <laughs> And here's this guy with an AK-47 right about here, and oh, I stepped dang. around with my 60 pointing right at him, you know, and I just flipped him. Yeah, that's and then a we bad joined day. up and went, kept going, and then three guys popped up out of the rice dike, and one they started shooting at us, and we were shooting back, but a sea wolf was coming right over us, and three rounds went right through the instrument panel on the sea wolf, didn't hit anybody. They turned like this, and the guy had a minigun and just went, oh, <laughs> and we just dropped down because there was fucking rounds going everywhere. <clears throat> yeah, that's that. the amount of firefights you guys are getting in to take no casualties. Yeah, is, we didn't. That's amazing. No. That's amazing. That's incredible. And we didn't have a lot of pictures either because we didn't have a professional photographer walking around with yeah. us. Yeah. No. I mean, it's uh, we missed... I would say in Ramadi, we missed the real, like, a couple deployments later, maybe a year later, when guys were going on deployments, they had pictures of everything, because they had helmet cams, and they had all this stuff, and we didn't, and as a matter of fact, at that time, there was, like, rules against taking pictures, so we don't have a bunch of pictures Yeah, we did, either. we never, in uh, both platoons I was in, uh, we took one just before we deployed, mm -hmm. you know, the whole platoon, and then, uh, uh, 
hardly nothing else after that. We wouldn't let photographers close to us. We wouldn't let uh, uh, news people even come close. We were on a Vietnamese base yeah. anyway. They couldn't get on it. <laughs> it was perfect. And we just, you know, we just went out and did our thing yeah. and had a good time and didn't beat no drums about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was It was good. There was a couple of platoons that had a photographer with them that took a lot of pictures and shit, and you probably, you probably seen them and stuff, and you know, we didn't. Yeah, and there's platoons. Well, for in Iraq, there was platoons that got in trouble, and that's one of the reasons why we didn't take pictures because there was platoons that had pictures that got exposed and got released, and they shouldn't. Have, they were pictures they shouldn't have taken, and they got in trouble, and it, you know, yeah. not just that they got in trouble, but it, it was bad press, bad press for America, you know, and uh, that's why there was rules. It was like, hey, no pictures, so we don't have a lot of pictures when we're in well, You can do a hundred things right, and you do one thing wrong, and that's what's going to pop up. Yeah, and you do one thing wrong, and you take a picture of it. Yep. That's and these days, yeah. you know, that picture's going around the world in, oh, yeah. in, in thirty seconds. Yeah, so. It's uh, the that's one thing that has definitely changed, and it, and like I said, when we were in Ramadi, we were just on the like I don't think people were really on social media yet. That we you know not everybody had a camera, and not everybody you know had a video cam. These guys got video cameras now. They got helmet oh, cams. They got all this crazy, stuff, yeah. and you know some of it's good, some of it's beneficial. I mean, you're not going to get any better intel. There was a a company commander from the first of the five hundred six who was one of the best guys I've ever worked with, but he videotaped every time he went out on patrol. In a Humvee or or not in a Humvee, however he was going on patrol, he filmed the whole thing. And he was working in one specific district of Ramadi called the Mulab district. And he would come back and watch those videos. And he would just, and I sat there and watched him with him one time. And he goes, yeah, you see this garbage can over here? Yeah, this this one's a good landmark because it's a different color. And then up on this street corner right here, this, is a, this, this uh, pole is always filled with so many wires. It always scares me, you know, because there's so many wires hanging off it. And he just had the whole city memorized because he had a camera rolling in his Humvee the whole time. And for, so for that reason, plus when you gather intel, you know, you're going into a building and, and you got pictures of everything. You got, if anyone ever goes in that building again, yeah, here it is, here you go. Yeah. Well, here's what it's laid out. So there's some definite benefits to it, but yeah, there's some real drawbacks as well. If you know, for people can use that stuff for propaganda against you, or if you're videotaping things or you're recording things that are going to make you know the Americans look bad, and now you're saying, okay, you did this. Well, here's what was happening in the situation. Here's yeah. why this happened, and. Here's the context. Well, the context isn't going to make it onto YouTube. The only yeah. thing that's going to make it onto YouTube is the thing that makes America look bad, and that's what's going to. So the, guys gonna, and that's what the reporters are going to key on, regardless right. of anything. Yep. See, we had barn dance files. Did I tell you about that? You, d- you did mention them. Yeah, barn dance files were this. Uh, every time you went on an op and you came back, uh, the guy was telling you was our intel guy, our first class, mm-hmm. and uh, we'd, he'd fill out these barn dance Cards Why'd they, they call them barn dance? Is that just the pro uh, word for them or whatever? Pro word. Yeah. But if they had the who, where, what, and why's equipment, anything we found out there, what firefights we got into, what uh, <clears throat> what the enemy were using, anything that would be good intel. And it was yeah. just a five by uh, four by five card, but it was really good. Yeah. And every platoon, like our, the platoon we relieved, already had theirs. So if we were going back into a, a specific area that they'd went into, we had it uh, organized, oh, yeah. you know, nice. we'd look it up, pull it up, read and see what they hit and what they got and all that stuff. And that would be help us out when we were going on and we'd, when it, we did our briefs and stuff. And we'd do the same thing. But every platoon would have these barn dance files of what they did and the areas they went into and stuff. And it was pretty good, you know. That's how we did it. You know, that, uh, 
we didn't do the cam recorder like yeah. you're saying, but we anything that we saw that would be of interest of another patrol or another platoon going into that area, then we'd let them know, you know, through the barn dance files. Yeah. And then, like you said, uh, when we got to <clears throat> uh, Dongtam, Vinlong Province, uh, what they did is split us up into provinces or districts in that province. And then we would go out with our Kit Carson scouts or interpreter and gather intel from the PSB guys, the mm-hmm. chiefs, or from the SF that were out in the field, indoor rangers that mm-hmm. were doing fire bases and stuff like that, and bring that back. And then we would put it up on our SIP map and start working. You know, like uh, we had this one, um, we knew through our, our province that this one VCI, which is your high-level guy, they wouldn't transmit communication-wise. They would bring your orders in in packets, you know what I'm saying? And he would come through the province maybe <clears throat> once a month uh, with all once the, every so three So all weeks. the different information yeah, that was to be distributed. Yeah, and he would hand it to the VC what they wanted to hit and stuff, but he had all this stuff. We knew he came through there every time, but there were three different trails that he used because we'd gotten intel. Mm-hmm. We didn't know which one it was, you know. So we went out on the one trail, did an ambush, waxing people and shit like that, so we knew the next time he came, he wasn't going to do that trail. <laughs> and then we did the same thing on the other trail, right? Yeah. So we figured he's going to come down this trail. So we set up on him. Got him. He came down that trail, and we got him. Got some good intel. That's beautiful. <clears throat> but that was just working with actual intel, trying to figure it out, and, and, and working it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. worked out real good. Were you on that op? I always heard about this op where... They wanted to get this one VCI, and they ended up hitting like his his family or some member of his family. And then when they went to the fu- when they had the funeral, they went and got the guy that they. No, were I after. wasn't on that yeah. one. There's a lot of things that happened, and <clears throat> like you say, when you're in your platoon, that's kind of your world and yeah. that stuff. And I've heard of. I don't remember hearing about that, but I, yeah. I probably was one time in the trade winds, the bar we used to drink at in Coronado or something. I'm sure that that was brought up. And like guys used to hit tax collectors and get their uh, piasta from them, their money, and then they would turn turn that into MPC and you know, <laughs> stuff. You know, just different things. You yeah, know, guys were good hitting creative. the tax collector because that's a that's a good thing. You yeah, know? I'm, I support the tax <clears> collector and if the, for and sure. And if he had a whole bag full of money, well, oh well, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 awesome. That's uh. And it's all another thing that people, you know, it's all self-generated. So much of it is self-generated. Like what you're talking about is the same thing for us. I mean, I had an Intel group, but my Intel group was SEALs, some Intel SEALs and some Intel guys, Mm -hmm. and they created all of our Intel and, you know, our guys fed into it. And so we produced our own targets, kind of like what you're saying. Yeah. People have this thought that, you know, that the the assault force is sitting there waiting for some command to come down and go hit this target. But the reality is we're making up the targets. We're figuring them out ourselves most of the time. Yeah. Well, I can see the difference from my first platoon where we didn't have anything and my second platoon where we actually worked off of actionable intel that we got. It was like night and day. It's a whole different world. And just like we talked about before we started this, you know, you got your fine, you got your fix. And then you got your finish and exploitation. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that uh, we're the best in the world, I think, on DA stuff, the finish. But you can't do the the finish if you don't yep. have the fine where you know what to go and hit. You know what I mean? Yep. And uh, that's why a long time ago we started up that field craft and all that other stuff. But 
we our pro advisors we had a training site up in Cuyamaca. You know, we called so advanced training, and it was for our pro advisors because they would go over there by themselves yep. or with one other American and have about 50 VC, whatever, that they were in charge of. And the pros actually were for when the CIA would could collect intel, but they didn't have a a method of going out and hitting it, you know, reacting on it, doing the finish part of it. So that's when they started the pro program. Right. And well, that's we it for a, what? Provincial? Provincial recon units right. is what they were called, PRUs. We call them PRUs. Like yep. you say, if I throw out an acronym. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm just making sure that Because everybody. I'm just so used, you know. Anyway, and uh, they would pull select guys to go through this PRU training and East Coast guys too. And uh, then they would go over and work. For and the, you said uh, they'd be in charge. You said VC, but you didn't mean that, right? XVC. XVC, yeah. got Not, not yeah, the yeah. act of guys that chew yeah. void and stuff and decide they wanted to make money. You right. know what I mean? So mercenaries is what they were. And... um so uh, they had that training does, up does there. Does Chuhoi mean tra- – does it mean turncoat? What is it? Uh, uh, Chuhoi is a guy that, yeah, you left the uh, VC left the side VC or the MVA and went to but the south. Chu- do you know what Chuhoi actually means? No, I don't. The actual noun of it, no. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a But it was uh, – they had put him in this camp. <laughs> and like when we went to Dongtam, we went to that camp with our interpreter, but we just happened to have a – a special boat guy at the time, MST, we called him mobile support team, not SBU, mm. that spoke fluent Vietnamese. So nice. we'd bring him with us when our interpreter didn't realize this guy could speak ah, Vietnamese nice. too. And then we'd start interrogating guys for our district that we're in, you know, for myself or Vin Long yeah. where the guys were. <clears throat> and we would uh, talk to him, interrogate him and stuff, and they sounded like they were good to go. Then we'd bring him in as cars and scouts. And they would stay with us. We'd let them go and stuff. But anytime we had an op, they stayed with us until the op was done and stuff. You know what I mean? They, mm-hmm. We just didn't let them go. Yeah. But they turned out that they were great guys. And um, anyway, the, uh, the PRU program was uh, about – Six months long, and uh, half of it was tradecraft, half of it was medical, because mm. you had to have that when you're working out there. The medical, especially because you're on your own out there, yeah. you know, and you got to be able to take care of yourself if you get hit. And, uh, <clears throat> and then they would uh, come over, but these guys would also, after they got done, like, would go into another platoon and would be able to get that, his, yeah. uh, everything he did. And, but we had about seven guys that, or six guys, and was one of them that went to a, special school like Camp Perry, but it wasn't Camp Perry. It was different. It was a shorter version. Mm-hmm. And they got that training, and they're the ones that were the cadre for that SAT. And like my la- first platoon in 69, my whole platoon went through most of that before we deployed over. So you get all that stuff. We didn't get the field craft portion of it, but they had some great, really good uh, <clears throat> Uh, quick kill trails and stuff mm-hmm. like that and map and compass and everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, we're lucky because a platoon every once in a while, if they didn't have guys going through, would be able to pick that up and go through it. Yeah. But that was a superb training. I mean, really good, you know. Yeah, that's – yeah, it all, all boils back to training all the time. <clears throat> yeah. And that's one of that's one of the best things about the SEAL teams. Is but they called it too advanced training or SAT training. It okay. was spe- specifically for the uh, prevention recon units that they sent the guys over to. Yeah. So when you got back from that deployment to Vietnam, now, like I said, that was the November platoon was the last full deployment to Vietnam, and you now you know the war's kind of over, but but you stayed in the teams. Did you go right to buds? I mean, 
yeah. after that. So I get these orders to the amphibious base, and I thought, what the shit, you know? Because <laughs> that's when the Dirty 30 was happening and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> explain, the, explain, the, explain the Dirty 30 to people. Now, Dirty 30 is where after the war, we had too many people, and they wanted to cut us down. So even though guys just got out of training stuff, they picked 30 guys to go out to the fleet, be divers, EOD and stuff like that, and after two years they could come back or whatever, and it was just sucked. It was just one, it was one of the low points I think of the uh, teams. Imagine you just made your made it through buds and or UDT training, whatever they called it back then. It might have been buds, and next thing you know, you're you know you're going to dive school or somewhere. Anyway, I went over to and I was really pissed. I went over to uh, to um, uh, buds as an instructor. Land warfare was the uh, third phase and all that shit. But uh, they still had LDNN program going on then, which is uh, where, uh, mm-hmm. you know, gotten his action and some other guys did. And I, I, I wanted to stay there and still do the LDNN, but I, I figured, I, I don't know, I just was one selected to go to BUDS. Yeah. And, and when I got done with BUDS, I went back to Team 1. How long were you a BUDS instructor for? Uh, just uh, it's two years. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then you go back to Team One. I was there again for about seven years, and took about three or four platoons. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, when when you see buds now, because you still are in the community, is there any major difference that you notice between what you went through and what you see now? A lot more land warfare now. Yeah. I think the kids get trained better. There's so much more to learn. Yeah. I don't know, half our class probably would have flunked just academically with what the guys got to know now, I swear to God. We were a frog band. It was, you know, wasn't that hard. But now with all the calm and everything those guys go through. Are they teaching that stuff in BUDS? They teach calm in BUDS? They teach some of it, yeah. Not all of it, uh-huh. but some of it. And they a lot of uh, IEDs, when they go out to uh, San Clemente and stuff, I guess they do. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's yeah. more in SQT. SQT. But, yeah, they got to use radios and shit yeah. there. In buds, but it's just a, it's a mixture between what we did in XQT, and what was the Frogman. But I think the Frogman part of it, the UDT part of it, is kind of really slacked off. I think they do a few cursory, parallel, perpendicular recons yeah. and stuff like that. But uh, when I went through, we were in that fucking water so much; <laughs> it was so cold, and everybody always says, "Do you, you wear know, wetsuits?" You earned your wetsuit, uh, and it bastards. wasn't a full wetsuit. It was just the. Uh, well, that's for sure. Shirt, yeah. That was the same with me. We had <clears throat> we had the old wetsuits with beaver tails. And we, even when I went through, this is nineteen ninety one, right? Yeah. And so it's not like you couldn't get a decent, <clears throat> good surfing wetsuit because I surfed and I knew what a good wetsuit was. So they give me that shitty uh, wetsuit with the beaver you? tail with the big zipper, <clears throat> a big loose open. It looked like a nineteen seventies disco. There's so much water going through that thing; it was almost not worth wearing. Well, <clears throat> we we our first swim was in UDTs and no fins or nothing. Mm-hmm. You earned your fins. Oh yeah, wetsuit appreciation. Yeah. They, they had and, a they they called yeah. it wetsuit appreciation, yeah. and then, and then, then fin well, appreciation also to get your fins too. You know, and then we got our fins, and we still did a couple swims without the wetsuit. Then we got our wetsuit, and I mean, it was like Jesus Christ. You know, yeah. <laughs> everybody always says, "Yeah, you you don't mind cold water, do you?" And I says, "I've hated cold water all my life. <laughs> it's just part of her job, and it's what you do." You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, you only get wet once. Yeah. that's what I like. You know what? You just oh, you're gonna get wet. You 
you just get it wet one time and it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. But the, uh, I mean, and there's certain things that I don't think have changed. Like there's always been a 5.5 nautical mile swim. Yeah. Right. That I don't think that's gotten any no. shorter. I don't think that that just is what well, it is. A lot of the standards have stayed the same yeah. physically. Yeah. And <clears throat> it. Uh, <clears throat> fluctuates a little bit, I think, about who's the director over mm-hmm. Buds and <clears throat> how many times they roll people back and everything. Back in the day, I mean, if a guy was got dropped or something, he was gone. You never saw him again. Yeah. He was just he was out of there. You know, there wasn't come back later. Maybe they did after a couple of years yeah. or something. Like we had a guy in our class named uh, and he had been in class 37, I think, and he had broke his hip. And then he was in my class, and he made it. You know mm. what I mean? We called him. <laughs> really got hypothermia bad. <laughs> yeah, Good was, man, though. There was a guy. There was a guy <clears throat> like, in my class that had rolled back. Is Jeff Higgs, as a matter of fact, who's mm. a jujitsu guy, but he had hypothermia. They dropped him for mm. hypothermia, and he would and he wouldn't. So they they told him he's out. They're like, you're done. Hey man, listen, you're a great guy, but you can't you can't be in the program anymore because you just get hypothermia too easy. And he's like, no, I'm not leaving. And they gave him his dungarees back, which is like the regular Navy thing that you wear. Yeah. And, he, and he showed up with the class on Monday with his dungarees, dungarees on, on, just PTing with the class in the compound. And they looked at him and they're like, all right, we'll give this bastard another shot at the title. <laughs> and yeah, he was a, he's a hard dude and he made it through. But you know, hypothermia is a lot like um, uh, heated, heated um, exhaustion when you get at the, the heat thing. Yeah, That'll does, come back and bite you. Yeah. You know, it yeah. really does. I mean, I swear to God. Hypothermia is you know? like that too? Yeah, if you get a real bad oh, case man. of it. Because, I knew um, it was like that with heat exhaustion, but I didn't know yeah. it was like that with hypothermia. I think it is. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I'm just... Yeah, that's what I heard. So I don't know. Well, I'm lucky because I've always been pretty well marbled yeah. in terms of insulation. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> those really skinny, lean dudes. Well, that I always freeze. found out if you swim as hard as you can, you usually stay warm anyway. Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah that's a good point. And I don't like treading water in cold water. You know, yeah. but like that swimmer line I was telling you about, that was that was painful. God Almighty, that was cold. And I told you when we uh, first got to buds, they. Had us go down to 401 and gave us a talk. You know, the guy left you and right here won't be there. It's easier to pass a marshmallow through the keyhole of a needle than make it through. And we're all going, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and so they marched us all back in front of the bay. You know, I told you we we're on the bay side. And then the guy I was telling you about come walking out and he kind of looked at us and we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, how tough can this be and everything. And he said, uh, about face, forward march. And march us all with their dress blues right in the water. Yep. So you got your flap sticking out like this, all the white hats floating, and the officers sat and kind of looked at each other and went, God damn, <laughs> this may not be that easy. And it went downhill from there, you know? <laughs> yeah, that sucks. Getting, get, ruining your or, or, uniform. Or dress blues, dude. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. That's typical. Uh, so you got done You got done with being a Buds instructor. You went back and you did a bunch. Of, how many platoons did you do? I back think I did teams? overall nine. Damn. Yeah, that's not that many, but I mean, it was good. It Actually, was that is a lot. For anyone that's listening to nine platoons, it's a lot because that's nine platoons with workups. Yeah, that's like 20 years worth of work right there. Uh, um, and then, you know, I had a story about you. And you got into a fight with some guy at Nyland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like uh, you got into a fight with some guy at Nyland. Oh, no, that wasn't. 
Was that was this guy that was just out of prison? That's the one. Yeah, blue-eyed Aryan, <laughs> about six six. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, you, you know, I heard the story from my platoon chief, and he and he said, oh, "Yeah, he said Roger Hayden's the toughest bastard alive." And I said, "He goes, yeah." One time we're out at Nyland, and there's some guy in a bar, and he's whatever something happens, and you guys throw down, and apparently you guys had like a legit. Like five, maybe ten minute fight. <laughs> oh, which... it was terrible, yeah. So <laughs> I walked in the bar and I'm just sitting there and the song kept playing, this western. She rides this saddle and da 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 on and on. Finally, I asked the bartender, God damn, can you play a different song? <clears throat> guy turns it off and this great big guy stands up, like I said, he had blonde hair, about six four, I think. Let just look, you know, the steel blue eyes and stuff. And how come you turn that off? And the bartender pointed right to me. Well, he said to turn it off. And then the guy looks at me, and I went, "Hmm, I don't want to fight." <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just you just don't get in fights. And so I started walking out the door, going across the other bar, which is right across the street. Like he wouldn't have followed me. So he follows me out the door. <clears throat> And uh, I turned and looked at him, and I said, now nah, he's going to follow me over there. We'll probably wind up fighting. So I jumped on one foot twice and hit him as hard as I could, <laughs> <clears throat> right in the jaw, knocked him down. His head went like this and and hit the wall, and the son bitch stood right back up. And I went, holy shit, yeah, you know. So anyway, we d- did about a 10-minute fight, and he actually never hit me one time because I was just – I was in really good shape, you know, out in Nyland, yeah. running, and you know what I mean. And so finally we squares off again, you know, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and, you know, I'm covered with blood, but it's his blood dripping on me because <laughs> I just kept, you know, if the guy had ever – hit me he'd have killed me and I, he was fighting for fun i was fighting for my life you know that's that's the deal so he squares off again and finally i went uh we can i'm not tired yet and we can keep on fighting or we can go across the street and have a beer and he thought about it and he says well let's go have a beer puts his arm around me you know you're pretty tough for a little guy <laughs> and i'm almost crying you know, going, god thank god you know? <laughs> now that's probably the toughest fight i've ever been in that guy was a Jesus. And then I found out he'd been in prison. Yeah, that's what I was And gonna... that's what he did is weight lift and box when he was in prison. Yeah, that how, was the... how I got out of that, I'll never know, man. That was the punchline was the dude just got out of prison and was a weightlifter and a boxer got boxer in yeah, prison. Yeah, that was a that was a that was <laughs> got a, worn out. <clears throat> I had a few moments of excitement in that one. And then you uh you became a warrant officer? Yeah, I was a yeah. master chief. I was master chief of group one. And that that was all I was going to do. After mm-hmm. that, I wasn't going to go to WARCOM or anything. And that's when they came out with a warrant program. So I put in for warrant and went warrant and then uh, deployed to Desert Storm, came back. And then uh, we started the uh, that special program I was in. Yeah. We did that for about a year, year and a half. And the <clears throat> benevolence of uh, WARCOM decided we didn't need that anymore. So they took us all and put us in to run the first uh, SQT. Yeah for group one instead of having it at the teams. And then we did that. And then I went from that to uh, start doing ORES. That's awesome. awesome and finished man. up doing ORES. You put, when I was in my second platoon, all the guys, the, all of our new guys went through your uh, your SQT. SQT yeah. yeah. And we, we've been going for like two hours right now. Just, um, I want to get one more question. Some, some people listen to the podcast that want to go in the SEAL teams. And, you know, any sort of thought on what they should be thinking about when they're trying to get in or trying to go through. They ask me all the time. You know, I always say real simple stuff, you know, like, hey, do a bunch of pull-ups, push-ups, dips, swim, run, and don't quit. 
and and that's how you make it into the SEAL teams. Then when you get into SEAL teams, you know, work your ass off. Well, you know, you get all those kids up at the pre-training up at Great Lakes, you know, physically fit, perfect. And uh, it's the mental thing. It's uh, you got to take each day at a time when you get there. And if you finish that day, be real happy, then hit the next day and keep going on. Don't look ahead of what you got to do. But uh, it's like when I was a second time as a bud instructor, as a master at arms, you know, and I'd get all these guys in and I'd tell them, if you want to do everything we want to do and have the easy life, go EOD. If you think you're going to be a diver and a working diver, I said, go be a diver. And I told them, if you want to be cold, wet, and miserable, then go in the SEALs. But I will say one thing, even going through BUDS, and you can probably attest to this, that just gets you into the teams, and then you deploy, and that's where you pull from what you experience in BUDS, yeah. rather, where you have to push yourself to the nth. You know, like uh, <clears throat> there again, too, in 69, we were doing this, uh, when I was with Kilo Platoon, we were going to set up this ambush on this river, we had to go through about a click and a half of mangrove shit, and that's where it was all gray and shit from uh, Agent Orange and shit. <clears throat> I was up to my knees in uh, mud, up to my waist in water, and uh, when you're holding your weapon up high enough to keep it out of the water, and you go for about a click and a half in that shit, using just compass because there were, we didn't have GPSs and all that shit, and you kept going till you ran into the stream or whatever you're going to set it up on you had a strain headache so bad your fucking eyes were crossed and you're breathing in mosquitoes in your mouth and spitting them out and shit like that that's uh that's you do that you come back and (laughs) drink beers and pat poopers you know you're good to go or you're in korea and in pohang and you got to hit this target but you got to go over about three mountain ridges because you can't run the ridges in korea you got to go up and down them and uh, come out of a submarine and land on the beach and it's cold and you're you're kind of covering why one guy's trying to take off his wetsuit and he's falling down till he gets it off then then you do it and you get about halfway up the first uh, mountain ridge before you start getting warm that's when you find out if you uh if you got it or not the bottom line is uh we complete the mission, you know. Yep. That that's what we do, no matter what. But like I say, buds, hell week, all that shit, just gets you your mind in the right place to know that. Well, goddamn, I went through hell week. I can do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And other things like the five mile swim and all that stuff. And that's all. Yeah. <clears throat> it's just a. It's it's more. You. I've seen when I was an instructor, great big guys that were football players fall out and quit. And I've seen little skinny guys that you laugh at and think this guy's going to be a SEAL, and he makes it through. Mm-hmm. It's all because of up here in his mind, you know. Yeah. Do you agree? I mean, does that sound? Yeah, and, and I've always, you know, the <clears throat> BUDS is a screening process, and you don't actually learn much in BUDS. It just gets rid of the people that don't want to be there, and the real test comes when you, you, know, when you get into combat because going into – you know, being cold, wet, and miserable for two or three or four or five days and training and doing a bunch of push-ups doesn't compare to what you were just talking yeah. about. Or of you. Being, yeah. I think of the sand and the heat yeah. and all that shit that you went through. That's, yeah. I mean, I I don't like the desert. And I don't like cold in the mountains. You give me the jungle anytime, and I'm a happy camper. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't like mosquitoes, yeah. so I'll, I'll take the desert <laughs> or the mountains. But those are the things, 
you know, you know, I always say that, or I always talk about seeing my guys lined up to go out in Ramadi, and their their Humvees are lined up, and like if I wasn't going on the op, it was just like a platoon was going out, and I'd stand there, just I'd salute them, like as they were leaving. You know, I'd just stand out there and salute them as they were rolling out, and what it takes to be the lead turret gunner in the first Humvee is more than what it takes to get through buds, like. Yeah. That guy who knows that there's been, you know, an IED on the road he's about to drive by, there's been seven to ten IEDs a day on that road. And he's the lead turret gunner and he's gonna roll out again and he did it the night before and he did it the week before and he did it the night before that. That's what the test is. And you so, know, plus that reminds me of when I was on that um, Boston Whaler too. Where is he? He's up at the top, right? What can people see him? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Any uh, rockets or anything like that, you know where it's going to go. Yep. Yeah. Because they're yeah. going to want to stop that from shooting. You know what I mean? But uh, just a, just an example. I mean, like when I was in Subic, would be uh, we'd uh, take the in Subic is pretty neat because the topography there was you'd go from triple canopy jungle down to mangrove to where the lower mal was, which was their their uh, fuel place and stuff. Well, I'd take my guys up to the, uh, about four or five of them, up to the hospital, which is up top. We'd go down through the triple canopy jungle, work our way all the way through, spend the night, then come in and hit the lower mouth. So they had triple canopy, Hmm. regular jungle, and mangrove swamp type of stuff. And they would go into just to kind of let them know, you know, this is what it was like, boys, you know. Uh, that's all that's that and that's what it's like yeah. that's what it's like that's why we train hard mm-hmm. and to be prepared for that stuff so yeah awesome awesome advice echo speaking of advice sure do you have any advice on how anyone if they want to maybe support the podcast or support themselves how they could do that sure quickly. of course quick question <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. quick question you mentioned the booby traps uh, like what kind of booby trap? What is it? Like trip wires? Oh God! You, we went Everything. before when we deployed, and I don't know if it was, I think it was seventy seventy one. We stopped in Hawaii, and sure. went through the EOD booby trap course that they had that they'd picked up over the years in Vietnam and set it all up. And after we went through that thing, you didn't even want to go over just about because it was yeah. unbelievable. But they would uh, do stuff like. Um, They'd like to use, the, you guys would call them IEDs, but they'd be like mortars up in trees and stuff, and they'd use different methods. Like a guy named, uh, they got, he got hit with a command detonated, uh, might have been a mortar, and hit him pretty bad. But, uh, but sometimes they would take filament down and put uh, uh, fish hooks on it so that you would grab it. You wouldn't feel it on the bottom, you know. Mm. And it would pull, set off, whatever they had set up. If you usually saw a filament line that was just kind of saggy and everything, mm-hmm. you'd go ahead and cut that. If it was tight, you didn't fuck with it. Like I say, the smart thing to do is to back away mm-hmm. and come in another direction. And the way the R point scouts did it, they were really good. They would take a thin uh, 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 branch or stick, you know, real thin. Mm-hmm. Like just like when you're fishing, right, you can right. feel a bite on the line. They would take that and they would hold it kind of in the center. And as we're moving slow, they'd move it. Anytime that thing dipped, yeah. they'd reach down and feel it. Like a lot of other times, if you 
going down a trail, which isn't a really good idea anyway, but you'd step over a log. Sometimes they'd put pressure detonated stuff over that log if you stepped on it. So you'd always want to go to the side. Just a myriad of things. There was a, who, a lot of that stuff was command detonated. Like when we were on those river boats, there was this place called Snoopy's Nose, you know, and we'd have the boats going like this, and when they would turn one group of boats, another group of boats would be here, and then they would open up on this group of boats so they would shoot across, but it wasn't that far to the, where the other boats were, yeah. and they'd start getting hit and thinking, God damn, we're being shot at, then you go back and forth. Yeah. Or they would uh, put a, a B-40 rocket, and they'd be down here in a spider hole, but they'd have... Uh, uh, <clears throat> like signal posts, little ones sticking up, you know. And as soon as the boat got right there, they would hit the command thing. That rocket would go off and hit the boat. Everybody would open up here, and these guys would be giggling, taking off. You know what I mean? Just, uh, just. Uh, you know the uh, the EOD guys that we had nowadays in the SEAL teams, the guys that come in, they they go through workup with them. They're awesome. Mm-hmm. You can't, you couldn't. If someone normal person was watching, they wouldn't be able to tell who's EOD and who's not. In at least when we were in Ramadi, and that's what most of the EOD guys are like. But my EOD guys, talking about not wanting to go over there, my EOD guys, they would they would put together briefs of like the latest the latest IEDs that's been out there. And this is when we're in Ramadi. And, you know, every couple, every maybe like once once every two weeks, they'd put together more of a detailed uh, brief of like, hey, this is what it does. This is this thing. And what we would do is when someone knew, like, let's say someone was in from out of town or we had like a visitor that was going to go on an op with us, you know, they'd give that extended brief to teach the guys. Well, what it actually did was it would just horrify yeah, that's whoever what yeah. showed up there. That's what happened to us when we went through that uh, yeah. movie trap that was, course that they had there. Yeah. That like, became like the joke. Like, I, you know, I look at the EOD, like I'd, I'd see their slide come up and I the, the initial slide in the brief was, I could tell it was the big brief. And I'd look over at the person that was going like our guest, you know, maybe it was like a senior officer or someone was going to come or some intel person that was going to go out and op with us. And I'd look them at the beginning of the EOD brief and, you know, they just have a normal look on their face. The, by the end of 22 slides later, they'd look like they didn't want to go anymore. <laughs> no, like, like the, the VC would take these uh, uh, <clears throat> stone things you have water in and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're going through a village, which we didn't do, we didn't usually sweep through villages and shit, they'd fill about half it up with uh, gasoline. And if they knew the Americans were coming in, they'd take a grenade, wrap up, say, rigorous tape or something that would – Disintegrate. Just, hey, drop it in there. Then, as the guys are going through checking out the hooches and everything, oh. that would go off. I mean, like if we were going to go into a hooch or something, we would tie a string to the door mm. and then pull the door open. Everybody would be down. Or if we saw something, and then where the steps were going into it, sometimes if we weren't hitting it quick, you know, you'd mm-hmm. check and see what was under the. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? See yeah. if there's anything. But it's just uh, they were ingenious, man. Yeah. They were really good, evil. You know? Evil. Uh, they beat the French and shit. You yeah. know, they, these guys have been fighting for a couple of years. You know. Yeah. Man. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. No. That was it. It's crazy how they get smarter, and then you guys get smarter that's, with trying to figure it out. Then they're like, okay, they're trying to figure out this, so they get smarter. You know, and it becomes yeah. The that's game. the game, and the game doesn't it's all stop. Part of the game. Yep. Dang. Speaking of the speaking game. of being in the game. Okay. Like that? Like I'll that. give that one to you. You took right. some alpha brain today, apparently. <laughs> I did. Alpha brain. Alpha brain from on it. 
I don't think there is any other kind of alpha brain, but nonetheless, I did take some and we're going to talk about it. Not for too long. So anyway, supplements, supplementation. So I was thinking about this. I was taking krill oil, actually, is when I was thinking about this. Where would you be if you didn't take any krill oil or any strong bone? Where would you be? We don't know. Behind? We're not going to find out. I'll tell you, you'd be behind. <laughs> exactly right. So so it kind of makes me think like, okay, you know, anyone who's thinking about, okay, Jocko Echo, they talk about taking krill oil all the time, how much it, it helps, and they didn't start taking it, you're behind. So my recommendation is take the krill oil. Not to mention the alpha brain, not to mention any other supplements that will help you get to where you want to be. You talk about procrastination sometimes. Every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest thing, by definition, that's going to keep you from doing it. Anyway, get on the supplements. That's the point there. And if you want 10% off the supplements that we all know are the best supplements, go to onit.com slash Jocko. Boom. There it is. Support yourself. Then you can support others. And it supports the podcast. Boom. There it is. Also, another way to support pod podcast is Amazon click-through, which means before you do your Amazon shopping, Click through the website, jockopodcast.com. Little banner there. A good and natural way to do it is, you know, when you shop for the books, like the books that you cover. Mm -hmm. We have a whole page of all the books, all of them. Click through there. Boom. It'll take you right to the books you purchase. That's a good way to support. There it is. Support your brain as well with books and educating yourself. Also, subscribe to the podcast. On iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all these other podcasting providing platforms. If you haven't already, that's a good way to do it. Leave a review if you're in the mood. If you're not in the mood, then don't do it. Or you can still do it if you're not in the mood, whatever you want. Also, YouTube, subscribe to that one. People have been subscribing. That's good. It's good because it helps spread the word. Seems obvious, but when you really think about it, it's not as obvious as you might think. Because when you get that alert, it's not just the whole podcast, as we always kind of mm -hmm. note. It's like little excerpts, you know, a lot of times, or a little bit more artistic excerpts. You'll be more compelled to share those. And uh, we talk about shareability, right? When you get, when someone shares it with you, that's one thing. And you're like, okay, I'll listen to this. It's only two, three minutes long. But on the reverse side, when, you, uh, when you're about to share it, you'll be thinking kind of in the other person's mind. They're more into listening to it because it's shorter. It's subtle, but there's a difference. So anyway, if you subscribe, boom, that'll, you'll ha it'll have that effect on you as well. I know it seems magic, but it's, it's very explainable. Anyway, point there is subscribe to YouTube. That's a good one. We'll put more videos on there as well. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. New Rash Guard is out. Straight up. We did it on the Facebook Live. I put it live on there. You were there. Mm, I was there. I think it was your Facebook Live. I don't think I've ever done a Facebook Live, by the way. Anyway, back to the store. There's women's <laughs> stuff on there. There's T-shirts on there. You have a T-shirt? We, we gave you a T-shirt, right, last time? We'll give you another one this time, too. They're pretty dope. <laughs> There's layers. There's more to the shirts than, than meets the eye. Warrior Kid shirt is out. Mm-hmm. Warrior kids shirts. Shirts. Adults and children. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Jocko uniform. That's what I'm calling it. The Jocko uniform. Oh, this shirt. Victory MMA and fitness shirt. You know, the actual original 
shirt. 100% cotton. Very soft. <laughs> like how Jocko likes it. Anyway, from my eye here. All right, that's what I heard. Anyway, a lot of cool stuff on, on there. If you want to support, get something. There's some patches on there too. Velcro patches, regulation size for the hats. Actually, we got hats coming out too, by the way. Oh. A lot of people are have been they asking. Out now? They're not out. They're not out. I'm oh, saying. So why are you even telling everyone? I'm saying because when people make these suggestions and a lot of people start making them. Okay. You know, the more people that make them, the more um, we we are likely to begin to think about executing. God, you make it sound like such a process. long process. It's a process because you can't just have like two guys saying, hey, we should get, um, you know, I don't know, something, earrings or something. And another guy's like, yeah, that's cool. No, we're and not there's doing only earrings. three. Exactly right. Story, don't ask. Boom. So you made my point for me. So hats were one of those ones where there was a lot of people saying we need hat or we sh- we should have hats. That would be cool. And people were like, yeah, I think that too. So anyway, hats are on the way. Some hoodies out there. I already mentioned the rash guard. I think. I think we have a lot of good stuff on there, but. Only way for you to find out is to go to jockostore.com and find out for yourself. If you're in the mood, get something like that or get something that's on there and it will support the podcast. Also, good way to support yourself in your journey. Journey? Are we doing journey? Are we yeah, journey? Doing, you've been doing it, just so you know. I know, but I just I have mixed still emotions not about it. With it. Still not comfortable. Yeah, I like when other people say it, not myself. Anyway, in your getting after it journey, waking up early, uh, sticking to the workout, sticking to the diet. I think that's the that's the main one. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. But don't say maybe. You were at my house the other day, and you were pounding. What were you eating? Chicken uh, wings. No, there was it was something no, was bad. Apple pie. Wait, wait. Was no. it apple pie? No. There was something. Nonetheless, as far as diets go, I went I went nuts on the chicken wings. <laughs> Technically, the way those were made, that wasn't much of a deviation from the diet. Okay. Anyway, the point there being diet is a hard thing. Something else, though. Forget what. Yeah, exactly right, and that's the point, really. Even Jocko gets nuts sometimes. It was a Saturday, <laughs> so that could have been his cheat day. Who knows? But I'm just saying, you can be on the program, and the diet thing that'll sneak up on you. That'll sneak up on you when you're not ready. Like if you're, if you have, okay, I gotta wake up at four thirty. You know when the insurgent is gonna come. He's gonna come at four <laughs> thirty. You gotta work out at eight thirty or five or whatever time. You know when the weakness might come. So you can be ready for it. The diet thing, you just don't know. That's what I'm saying. So, nonetheless, any moment of weakness, this is what you do. You go to iTunes or Amazon Music and get an album with tracks (laughs) called Psychological Warfare. All it is is a bunch of tracks. Jocko telling you why you should not skip workout. You should not hit the snooze. You should not eat the donuts. No donuts. Practical logical advice from Jocko. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because a lot of people, they look for inspirational advice. No, this is practical. Flimsy, right? Inspirational yeah. is very flimsy because it relies on you feeling like it. This has nothing to do with feeling. This has to do, by definition, with you not feeling like it. Mm. So let Jocko talk you into making the right decision. Boom, that's all it is. 100% effective. I dare you to skip the workout after work out and get after whatever the track is called there's a bunch of them on there because so anyway again psychological warfare itunes still number one by the way mm-hmm. last i checked holding holding strong holding strong for a good reason by the way yeah also when you're on amazon you can get jocko white tea which i'm drinking right now 
and the reason I'm drinking it is because it's delicious by the way was it taste like victory <laughs> uh, way of the warrior kid book came out feedbacks been unbelievable getting photos of kids doing pull-ups studying doing jujitsu basically getting after it in all realms of getting after it which is which has been awesome and if you want your kid to get after it yeah or other kids around your kid to get after it and become stronger smarter and better than get them way of the warrior kid and I just got an email yesterday from a friend of the family, 69 years old. Mm-hmm. Is that considered a kid? No, a little bit um, older than a kid. It's older than a kid, but know. guess what? He said he learned a lot from Uncle Jake. Yeah, I did. I just finished it. Oh, you finished it. I finished it. it a few days ago. I, I read one or two chapters. Just every night, routine, boom, mm-hmm. boom, with my four-year-old. Just finished Does she it. understand it? She understands a percentage of it. She's four. The good so things. She's gonna, Does she understand the impact yeah, of things? Yeah, so this is the plan. So she's going to understand these really, really basic things. And maybe, you know, I'm going to just read it over and over and over. So it yeah. becomes the ethos kind of thing. Yeah. And then after she gets older, she's going to start understanding the details, mm-hmm. you know. And then the, the more the older she gets, the more she understands. Just going to be her base way of thought. Her bo- warrior exactly kid. Right, the ethos. Boom. This guy, friend of the family, 69 years old. Learned from it, and then he went and bought a copy for all of his grandchildren, each of them individually. So that's good. Discipline equals freedom. Field manual, thoughts and actions. That's coming out. It's available. You can get it for pre-order right now. Extreme ownership, of course. You can get combat leadership applied to business and to life. So you can get that book. Also, if you want to get in the game, you can contact Echelon Front Leadership and Management Consulting Company that we have that contact is info at echelonfront.com also the muster is around the corner the austin texas muster 13 and 14 of july at the omni barton creek resort pragmatic leadership strategies and tactics that you can utilize day one no no reason to wait around you'll learn them and you'll be sending emails in a break (laughs) To your team getting things fixed there's only 300 seats for this because we wanted a smaller venue and this was the better venue it's gonna sell out so if you want to come get your tickets now until the muster if you have any feedback or questions for us you can find us actually on the interwebs Twitter Instagram and on the Facebook and echo is at echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink Roger, of course, has no social media. <laughs> he doesn't care. No. <laughs> Echo, you got anything else? I thank <clears throat> Roger Hayden again for coming by. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks I just want to service. say, though, Jocko, my son's been going to jiu-jitsu at your studio for about six months now, and oh. I tell you, he loves it. Yeah. And <clears throat> he was, went to about two and a half years of this uh, fighting boxing guy that was really good mm-hmm. and uh but he says that jujitsu is uh plus the instructors you got are top shelf yeah and uh it's he, he really likes it and he told me to tell you he really enjoys it and thank you yeah of course uh it's it's great to have our gym victory mma it's great yeah. to have it and to have it it's just accessible to people there's yeah. no walls around it yeah. it's an open door it costs money of course because you got to yeah. pay rent and all that stuff but, but not that much not not crazy what's it 100 bucks a month consi- you can train anytime you want anytime anytime yeah. you want 
well, not 24 hours a day, but six in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, compared and to then, other places. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, like yeah. literally three times as much training Plus, available. it's not just jujitsu. Yep. You got everything there. And he yeah. says that's what he likes about it. Yep. It's wide open and, uh, you know, he likes it. So. Yeah, it's got jujitsu, boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling, MMA, CrossFit. It's got everything in there. Yeah. And that's okay. why we built it. Uh Roger, you got anything else? No, I'm I'm good. I'm about burnt out now. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey man, once again, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Just awesome to have you on here. And the first time that you were on, I got a million. I know you don't do social media, but I got a million people saying, "Please bring Roger back on. Please bring Roger back on." And now that you were on today, and you t- once again, you have a good way of telling little bits of stories that are awesome. And I want to hear like <laughs> yeah. a one-hour story about yeah. sea wolves coming in and dropping bombs yeah. and spraying stuff down. I'm like, how does that? What I want to learn the tactics of what was going on. So. You're probably going to have to, you're burned out for today, but you're probably going to have to get on one one more time at least. <laughs> and uh, But thanks for coming on again, sharing your story, your experience, your wisdom with us. And more important, of course, thanks for what you did for our country, for the Navy, and of course for the teams. You're absolutely one of the guys that made the teams what the teams are. So thank you for that, Roger honor to have you on here and for the rest of the Vietnam veterans and I hear a lot from Vietnam veterans thanks to all of you for holding the line and thank you for every deployment for every operation every mission every day spent out on patrol every night spent out in the bush every helicopter assault every river operation every combat sortie every case of jungle rot and malaria and every wound received and every brother lost thanks to you all for what you did for us we will never forget so until next time this is echo and jocko and warrant officer seal roger hayden